brought to you by SOCOM athlete, Cindy. A standard Mike Hazel from the USA, who was most impressive in Melbourne. He took that event out, the 28-year-old, and he launched it out to 81-89. So impressive throwing. Oh, we got the Vizio Fiesta Bowl in Glendale, Arizona, Boise State, and Arizona. It's the 20th-ranked Boise State Broncos taking on the 10th-ranked Wildcats of the University of Arizona in what is expected to be an old-fashioned shootout in the wild, wild west. Let's go, Corner! FSOC is comprised of highly trained, rapidly deployable airmen, bringing specialized mobility, reconnaissance, foreign international defense, and precision strike to the fight anytime, anywhere. Though the Air Force's smallest command, over the last 15 years, AFSOC has seen more combat and has inflicted more casualties on the enemy than any other command. What's going on? Thanks for tuning in to SOCOM Athletes Podcast. Send me. This is your host, Jason Sweet, and I'm here tonight with two of my good friends, former combat controllers, Mike Hazel and Connor Matthews. And to give you guys a little bit of a background on what we're going to be talking about tonight, we're going to be talking about the differences and similarities between special operators and elite athletes. And Mike Hazel was actually an Olympian who went into combat control later on in his life. And Connor Matthews is a former combat controller who is now fighting as a pro MMA fighter. Mike, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? And, and thanks for coming on tonight, by the way, my man. Yeah, brother. It's always good to see you guys. Uh, Connor, been a while, man. Good to see you, brother. Uh, yeah, brief background. I'm currently living out in North County, San Diego. Uh, starting my PhD this fall in health and human performance. Uh, prior to that, I got out of combat control in January of 2019. Uh, enlisted in January of 2013. Right before that, <clears throat> wrapped up a 10-year professional athletic career as a, a javelin thrower, Team USA, um, three world championship teams, 2008 Olympic Games, uh, 2007 Pan Am team, just kind of all over the place doing that stuff. Uh, prior to that, finished up my master's degree in sports management and kinesiology in 2003 at Texas State University. So that's kind of a backwards time trail of uh, where I'm currently at and how I got there. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Connor. Yeah, I appreciate you guys. Thanks, thanks for having me on. So, um, yeah, currently right now, I'm uh, living back up in Massachusetts, where I'm originally from, fighting professional MMA at the moment. I'm currently 2-0. Uh, just got out of the Air Force um, in 2018. Or actually, it's 2019. I just got out in April. So, I've only been out for like a year now. Um, yeah, served as combat controller. Actually, me and Mike actually went through basic training and went through the pipeline together. So, that's kind of kind of ironic and kind of crazy. But, uh, yeah. Uh, one deployment to Afghanistan. Um, I was chasing up in JBL in Washington. And yeah, that's where I'm at right now. I've been doing martial arts my whole life. I've always been doing sports, played hockey was my main sport. And um, after I graduated hockey, I kind of focused on martial arts and, and had a couple amateur fights, joined the military, got out. Now I'm focusing back on to mix martial arts and trying to make my way to the UFC. Great to hear from you, Connor. And for those that don't know my background, I uh, was a pararescue man, played a little bit of college baseball before that and then played some football at the University of Arizona after that. It's great to have these two fine gentlemen on with us tonight. And before we get into the interviews and we talk a little bit more in detail about Mike Hazel's background and Connor Matthews' background and their stories, 
let's just give you guys a, a foreshadowing of what we're going to talk about tonight is the differences and similarities between special operators and elite athletes. So first, I'm just going to ask you, Mike, like, what do you think is the primary difference overall based on your career as a combat controller and your career as an Olympian javelin thrower? What do you think of the primary differences and similarities, brother? I think the, a great analogy that I would use is uh, as a professional athlete, like in track and field, probably even football uh, or any other uh, of the big three power sports. I think the analogy I like to use is, is you're tuned up like a Ferrari. Like you've got an entire team around you that are tightening the, the, the lug nuts, checking the air pressure on the tires, um, making sure your fluids are topped off, you're getting rubbed down, you're getting massaged. You got all these people supporting you in order for you to make this fantastic performance that's only in a short period of time. Um, and I think for special operators, uh, you're, you're exactly the opposite. You're, you're a tank. You're, you are built to endure everything and withstand anything. And, um, you know, you can take a beating and keep on ticking. Like, you know, if I, when I was an athlete, if I had an eyelash out of place, I had someone there to fix it. Um, and it just doesn't work that, that way in the teams. Like you're always going to be underfed, um, uh, underslept, overstressed and overworked. And you just have to be able to put your head down and, and get the job done at all costs. Um, the other biggest analogy I like to use is I'm pretty sure people have heard it a million times. The, a big difference between athletics and, and operators is if athletics, you screw it up, you get another shot, regroup the next week, the next competition, in combat, man, if you screw it up, there's lives at stake. So it's a zero fail mission most of the time. And that, that honestly is the biggest driver between uh, stress and, and cortisol and performance anxiety. Like, you know, if you're going to go out and, and, you know, get in a cage and, and fight somebody, or if you're going to go out to a, a competition and throw the javelin somewhere, you're in a controlled environment. There's people that are there to, to look after you and, and keep the, the competition safe to a, to, certain, to a certain extent. And it's just not like that in combat. So that's what I think is the big difference. Thanks, Mike. Great points there. Connor, what do you think, man? Um, yeah, so Mike literally just hit the nail on the head with that. And, and, and it's funny because we did it, me and him are backwards. He did his professional career before he joined Combat Control, and I did my professional career after I did Combat Control. So I can use all those things he's talking about in my career, and I can see it in, in such a change. I mean, I had a couple of amateur fights before I joined, and I remember the biggest things before my fights was the anxiety and the feeling getting into a cage and thinking like the whole world is like, you know, eyes on me. I mean, I'm in this cage. I'm getting, this is crazy. I'm about to fight somebody locked in a cage and I used to get anxiety about that. And then after I served my time as a combat controller, you know, dealing with all those stress, stressful situations, like you're saying, like, you know, uh, sleep deprivation, jumping out of planes, all these, these, you know, these life things we had to do. Um, I'm able to deal with my stress so much more and so much better. So now it, my mental edge I have getting to a cage and not realizing it's not that big of a deal to get into a cage with a referee who's in there. You know what I mean? What's the worst that can happen? Get knocked out. That's it. And, and now I can just stay calm, relaxed. And, and on, on top of that is, like you said, the training. So, like, you know, when every single day I was going through the pipeline, you're exhausted. You're up night, late, late at night studying to take a test the next day, and, or you're, you know, they're not letting you sleep, and you're, you know, you're taking tests, you're doing tons of physical activity, running you down to the ground, and you still, and you still have to perform, you know, to maintain, to stay above the water. And um, now I get all that. I get all the sleep. I wake up, you know what I mean? I, I make sure I get in bed um, really early. I, I get my stress level is just way down. It's so much easier to perform when you have no stress and making sure you can set, I can set up my schedule the correct way 
to be able to perform right. Back then, they had no control. Of my back when I was in the pipeline and going through training, I had no control of my uh, my schedule. So I just noticed it's just so much easier to get better. It helped a lot for, for being an athlete in ways I would never even thought about. So great point there, Connor. Especially from the side where athletics can prep you into being a solid special operator. And we'll talk about this a little bit more later. But we group athletics all together, but. As you guys know, it really comes down to the sport that you're talking about, right? We have individual sports, we have team sports, we have sports that obviously involve combat like yours, where you're actually throwing blows at somebody and potentially knocking somebody out or getting knocked out. Or maybe you have a a sport like baseball, where there is a little bit of contact, but it's not a whole lot of contact and it's a a strategy-based sport uh, with a lot of teamwork involved. So uh, the sport definitely drives um, the preparation and how much that will get you ready for special operations, but something that a lot of our listeners and a lot of our students aren't aware of until they get into this program, SOCOM athlete in particular, is the teamwork aspect and the teamwork demands, the communication demands, the mental resiliency that's required of these career fields. And the the sooner you can start this, the more natural it's going to be whenever you're in the training situation or, or whenever you're actually on a mission, right? You start early and this becomes behavioral for you. So um, let's get right back into uh, um, talking a little bit more about you guys' story. I want to hear a little bit more uh, about you, Mike, and, and, and you, Connor, and what led you guys into the path that, that you're on now. So let's start with Mike. Seniority rules <laughs> much, here, Mike. How, how, Mike, how, how old are you, man? Not, not to throw you under a bus. You're, you're brother, a stud, dude. And I, I have heard you, I, I have heard you uh, somebody refer to you as the hottest dad in Cardiff, <laughs> California. So you're doing all right, dude. I can throw you under a bus uh, all I want. So. It. You're 41 yeah, now, 41, Mike. man, 41. And uh, it, it's a trip, man. Age is, it's interesting. I, I, I remember, you know, being in the, in the pipeline with Connor and these dudes, and I was in my, my mid to late 30s and telling these dudes, hey, I'm, when you guys turn 36, 37, 38, I'm going to call you. I'm going to hit you up. And I'm going to ask you if you want to go do some of the stupid shit we're doing right now and see how that feels for you guys. <laughs> so, so some so of these you, were, you were Grandpa Hazel in oh, the pipeline. Man, yeah. huh? you said you All right, so I, uh, my funniest, funniest story I got uh, about the pipeline, uh, well, really, it's basic training. It involves Connor. I don't know if he remembers this or not. We, I think we've talked about it before. Um, so um, I <laughs> went in. Is this, you, is this you yelling in the, in, the, in the dorms that night, freaking out? Is no, that story? Not, I'll let you do that one. I'll let you do that one. <laughs> Uh, but I actually showed up. If anybody knows everything, anything about basic training, it starts on a Monday, right? Well, I, I was assigned to an Air National Guard unit from day one. And nobody at my Air National Guard unit had sent anybody uh, to basic training before me. And so the people who I showed up to, to my unit up in Portland on a Monday, were like, shit, man, I got to get you to basic training. And apparently it started today. So we're going to have to we have to get this thing going. So I did all the in processing and the enlistment and you know the, the oath and everything. I showed up to basic training on a Wednesday. And uh, I remember taking my stuff, you know, and getting off the bus and some dude yelling at me and you know, he's kind of looking at, I was 217 pounds. I was in the best shape of my life. Like I was 34 years old, 217 how, pounds. How tall are you, Mike? How, how tall are you? Six feet. So you were six feet, 270, 220 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, just a, just a caveat on that. I saw Mike walk in the door and he's like, Hey, yeah, I'm here. I'm going to want to be a combat controller. And I'm looking at this dude. I'm looking at him like, I'm fucked. That's the story. There's no way. Hey, bro. <laughs> I'm supposed to look like this guy right here. <laughs> How much weight did you lose at basic training? Mike? No, about, I mean, you don't get about 25 there. pounds. And you don't lift. About, you lost, lost 25 lost pounds of muscle. Pounds. 
Yeah, 25 pounds of muscle. So you lost some serious gains. Yeah, so it was point like, and you know, people are like, oh, what should I do, you know, before I get to basic training? I'm like, don't even worry about it, man. Like, get the standards. You're going to get the basic and you're going to lose everything that you that you trained for if you do it the way I did it. Um, you, I think they're doing a little bit better now with the, the special warfare prep and everything. They're doing right. more, more, you know, athletic uh, or more pipeline specific workouts and training so that when guys come out of basic, they're not just, you know, shells which is basically what we were um but yeah so that's that's one of the stories you know yeah, connor, i remember about, Car- connor yeah, walking about connor. They, yeah, yeah well, i want to hear from like, your hey, side bro uh what you what are you doing here and i was like uh, with that heavy I'll boston accent con- i want to be a combat control and he was like gosh yeah bro i'm never gonna make it <laughs> and then so, why because he looked at you up, and thought yeah, that dude. that's what he needed to yeah. look like if he was yeah this guy looks like a freaking greek god coming in here chiseled six feet jacked more abs than like you know me on cut day i had another kid come up to me and uh he you know he kind of comes up from a distance and he's eyeing me up and he was like hey uh uh how old are you and i was like i'm 34 and he goes holy shit man my dad's 35 and i was like That's right. <laughs> get to bed <laughs> get to bed go roll your t-shirt son go yeah. practice your roll about your face t-shirt. so yeah that was just some funny stories about just like you know basic training and stuff like that but yeah i lost my i lost my shit one night because i'm old man man i was trying to go to bed and all the young bucks you, you know connor and the rest of the knuckleheads are just all hopped up running around flipping people out of their bunk beds in the middle of the night and stuff <laughs> and you're so, over here taking, taking your night quill and stuff doing your your meditation routines before you go to bed huh <laughs> i know it man i know it so, yeah. so mike, mike let's rewind a little bit okay because you you had a little bit of an unconventional path into Very. special operations right so you Very. joined later on in life you had a degree you were doing pretty well in life you're an olympian tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about that man yeah, so I'd always had a fascination with the military. I remember watching in 1986, going to see the original Top Gun with my dad. And I was just like a whole, like probably most kids were at that time, um, just blown away and just like, oh man, I remember going home and hanging F-14 Tomcats and everything from my ceiling with like fishing wire. I was building I models. I thought you were about to say hanging Tom Cruise posters. I'm, I'm glad you said Tom <laughs> no, dude, no, I never got a Tom Cruise poster, but uh, I, I had a, a couple other posters on my wall that I'm not so happy about. Uh, um but i'd always i'd always been fascinated and uh you know i i was even when i got to high school when my athletics and stuff started really kind of excel i was starting to mature um we would have a boot camp week in football where in fort hood texas they would send us army drill instructors uh to my high school and we would do boot camp for a week and it was a fantastic experience for me like just the structured environment and of course they're yelling getting in our face push-ups marching in formation and yeah it was it was physically challenging but the amount of camaraderie and teamwork that the team got out of that was 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 fantastic and i really had a uh, a good time doing it even though it was physically hard so i'd always had the military thing in my uh, in my back pocket and I uh, did not, I don't think anybody expected my athletic career to do what it did. And um, in 2008, if, uh, if I hadn't have made the Olympic team, I would have went in, I would have went into the military right then in 2008. So, um, and I had uh, pushed all the paperwork to, uh, to go to Bud's to be an officer, actually got a billet for fiscal year 13. <clears throat> and uh, there's a, there's a, a big backstory behind why I chose the Navy. Um, I was living in San Diego. My neighbor was a SEAL. Um, the SEALs would come down to the Olympic Training Center and they would do some training down there. And 
uh, I thought that they were the gold standard and the media thought that they were the gold standard. And everything that I had read was if you want to be a special operator and serve at the highest capacity, you need right. to be a SEAL. You know, any, nobody really knows what a combat controller is. I mean, yeah. within the community, right? Yeah. But if you, and same goes with pararescue and Green Berets, Rangers. But if you ask just your grandma on the street or you ask just any average Joe, they're going to know what a SEAL is. For sure. The, yeah. the movies, the books, yeah. uh, they've done a phenomenal job of yeah. creating that mystique around the career field. So it's mm -hmm. a really good point you say that because we have had many students that have come to this program that originally want to be SEALs because they've read a book or they've seen the movies and then they're exposed to other career fields. And they're like, wow, I didn't even know about that. I want to do that. That's exactly what happened to me. That's what happened to you. That's exactly what happened to me. And again, San Diego, there's not an Air Force base within two hours from here. Um, so nowhere in my, on my field of prospective careers was, was combat control or pararescue. But anyways, fast forward, government sequestration happens in 2012. Obama gets reelected. DOD loses billions of dollars. Um, Billions, yeah, probably billions. And you're throwing um, and so anyways, at the time, Mike. I had just retired. I now retired. How did, at, how did you, you even get into that? Was did you always throw javelins? Were you like, were you like chucking? I mean, spears at people when you were a kid, or freaking, <laughs> you know, killing animals out oh, there man. in the woods for fun? I was a, like, is this I like a to, pastime? When did you start throwing these things, dude? My junior year of college. I went to scholarship. Really? I went to school on a football scholarship and walked on the baseball team. I bounced back and forth between those two sports for for three years, and finally. So did somebody year. scout you out, or or what the, happened? The, the, the track coach. The the track coach was a family friend of ours. He had actually coached me in high school. Um, really? and he, he persuaded me to come try out for the track team. He was just like, yeah, he How stopped me on campus one day and he was just like, Hey, what's going oh, on? You walking Mike? around with your shirt off and your bum. Oh, I had a, I had a, I had a big ass knee brace on and he was just like, what happened to your knee? I said, tore my ACL. And he goes, so are you still playing football? And I was like, I, I actually quit football. And he was like, I read something about you playing baseball and possibly getting drafted. And I was like, I tried back out for the baseball team and I got cut. And he was like, well, what the hell are you doing right now? And I was like, being a college student hungover and he was like yeah nah, 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 that's 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 not good enough so he had uh he had some scholarship money left over and he persuaded me to come out to the track and field team uh to try out for the decathlon if anybody knows what the decathlon that's is. that's huge it's, my, my pause real quick as, mm -hmm. as a former baseball player uh, mm -hmm. i gotta ask you what do you think are the similarities between the throwing motion of a baseball and a javelin, right? Because you're still using the torque, using your <clears> hips. Because I could never really throw a football well. I feel like yeah. I struggled being able to throw a spiral because of so many repetitions throwing a baseball. Yeah. What do you think? There's actually not a whole lot of uh, similarities. Um, and the biggest difference is because of drag. You know, if you got a baseball, think about it. It's baseball. It's a couple ounces. You can, you can deliver that baseball 90 to 100 miles an hour in any different plane that you want. Yeah, the javelin's eight and a half feet long, and it's two and a half pounds. So you, you play baseball, Connor. You're you're nodding your head. Yes, you you played baseball too. Yeah, I played baseball growing up. wasn't wasn't my first. I was more of a hockey player, but I did play yeah. growing up until yeah. high school. You got eight and a half feet of drag that you're pulling through the air, and so you have to figure out a way to line it up. It's a lot like it's it's more relatable to golf, like hitting a golf ball, than it is throwing a baseball. And and then the other, the last thing about that is is the human arm. It can only take you so far. And in the javelin throw, the human arm will take you roughly around 72 to 75 meters has been some of the biggest like standing arm throws that I've ever seen. Um, and those are just, you know, once in a million type of guys. In order to get over the 80 meter mark to be competitive internationally, world championships and Olympic games, you got to learn how to use speed and elasticity and your full body to throw. So um, there's actually not a whole lot of similarities. You know, people 
say all the time, oh, I can throw a baseball 95, 98 miles an hour. You know, do you think I could throw a javelin? And I'm like, I'd actually like to see you on a, on a, on a Olympic high bar or a pair of like parallel rings, or, you know, can you do a standing backflip or a front hand spring round off or something like that? That's a better determination of how well of a javelin throw you're going to be than how fast you can throw a baseball. So I got my ass handed to me millions of times in competitions, millions of times, uh, hundreds of times in competitions by way less, uh, talented athletes, but they were technicians. They were absolutely dialed into their mission. The world record holder is only six feet, 185 pounds, but he was a human rubber band and he maximized angles and minimized slip and y'all. And, and, and he's just a, he's just a technician. So to answer your question, there's not a whole lot of similarities. I don't think, um, in, in the javelin throw, your right leg is, or your, your back leg is virtually non-existent. So you basically uh, had to le- learn to do something entirely new, completely in your new. junior year of college. Yeah. And all of a sudden you found yourself in the Olympics. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. I never thought about it that way, but yeah, that's kind of how it went. And, and I know you're a humble guy, Mike, but answer the question as honestly as possible. What do you think you, you would have done if you would have started throwing a javelin when you were a kid? Like how high do you think you could have competed? You think you would have got a gold or what? No, when you're talking about Olympic gold medals, I mean, how good are these guys, man? Some of these guys are, it's all, honestly, it really depends on when and where you go to the Olympics. So for instance, the Olympics that I went to in 2008, the guy that won it threw the Olympic record. He's one of my best friends. He threw over 90 meters to break the Olympic record. Nobody's ever thrown that far in the Olympic games ever. So even on my best day. So, so this is a football field in length. Yeah, over a football field. He threw yeah. it over a football field. Even on my best day. That's insane. If I had a personal best, I, I still wouldn't even have, even have sniffed that. You fast forward four years. If I, if I hadn't blown my elbow out and I'd made the 2012 Olympic team, 84 and a half won it. That's very, very doable. So it, it kind of, you know, it kind of depends, you know, you can't say, you know, would you have been a world record holder or, or Olympic gold medalist? I would say if I had started throwing earlier, I would have peaked a lot earlier and I probably would have had a much longer career. Um, you know, I had, a, I had about three, maybe four good years where I was actually uh, competitive on the world circuit, top 15, top 25 in the world. Um, I think if I had started earlier, like a lot of the kids in Europe do, um, I probably would have been competitive in my early twenties rather than my late twenties. I think that would be yeah. the only difference. Yeah. So, so Mike, I know I got you a little bit off on a tangent there, but back to what we were talking about, you were interested in becoming a seal. You found out about a combat control yep. and you mm-hmm. actually ended up enlisting in the air force in your mid to late thirties. Uh, you met Connor in boot camp. Um, catch us up to speed. What happened after that? So you and yeah. Connor become airmen. What, yeah. what happens after that, Connor? For me and him, I mean, yeah, we, we went through the pipeline. I think we went through selection together. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike always had a weird pipeline because he was a part of that guard unit. And so he was in and out. So, you know, for all the active duty guys, we would stay in like down in Medina and down in Lackland um, in between our schools. Um, so sometimes I'd be, I'd catch up to Mike. Sometimes he'd be in front of me or behind me, whatever it is, you know, we, he was in and out. I think he had a little bit of expedited for some reason. His pipeline seemed to get a little bit faster because he could just go to school, school to school. And um, I would have to go back to Lackland with all the rest of the active duty guys and, and wait for my school to catch up. Um, but yeah, man, we, we, we spent a lot of time together um, through training. Um, do we go, we were in the same uh, CCS team, I believe. Yep. So we graduated combat control school together. So we went through all that stuff. I mean, I think that's probably the thick of the 
pipeline to really so you guys you, know, you guys got to happen. start your journey together sorry real car you guys started your your yeah. journey together boot camp and then you ended your journey together uh, at least the the selection process at combat control school and got yeah. your berets we got our berets together and then um from there that which was an awesome day that was, that was a really good time for us to get that then um i was on we were on team together we went down to uh what's it called um AST or FTTS is whatever they call it now. Yeah, down, down at Herbert Field. Herbert Field. You, I end up getting CCS down at Fort Bragg, right? And, and then you guys, did you guys still go over to that bar Pirates and, and dedicate a plaque and, and do all that? <laughs> yeah, we did yeah. Do that. So, so we, we, uh, we had a student recently, we had a student recently, John, who graduated uh, the pipeline and I drove up to Bragg to, to watch him graduate. It was awesome, man. And uh, went with them to Pirates afterwards and they did the dedication, got to hang out with the instructors and they had some awesome instructors, man. It was really cool to see. <laughs> that's, that's, that's so different from what- yeah, That's what I heard. I, that's what I heard, yeah. Chief, Chief Innes did, uh, did our speech there and it was like the most morbid speech I've ever. My mom's there listening to it. She's like about to cry. Like, what did, I, what did my son just get into? It was hilarious. I, I was actually told not to go to graduation at Pirates. Because me and uh, one of the instructors were going to get it oh, on. Yeah. And so they were like, Look, <laughs> you, you, you've come this far. Just go out with your family and your wife and have a nice <laughs> dinner somewhere and have a nice glass of wine. Don't worry about what these guys are doing. You know, we'll see you in Florida. No, and I was, no pirates. This is, huh? The commandant told me that. So yeah. I was like, all right. <laughs> so, so, Connor, you, you went to pirates. And uh, how, how was that, man? Was it a great time or what? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, we're all like malnourished at this point. We just went through like FTX, Field Week, Land Nav, all the part of the school. So everybody's like, you get drunk off like, you know, a sip of beer. Everybody has a couple of beers and everybody's just like, got drunk real fast. But yeah, it was good. It was good. It was a good time because, you know, I, my, my family was there and, you know, up until that point, you're just going to school to school to school and you don't really get to see, see anybody too much. So um, it was it was a good time for sure. So fellas, let's get back to uh, to the pipeline. So what what do you think was Mike your your most challenging part of the pipeline? Do you think that it was going through as an older guy? Do you think that it was the fact that you were tempted with going back to the life you already had and that you you had a fallout plan? Like what what was your your hard part of the pipeline, man? Uh great question. Um I didn't have a fallout plan. Um and I think that was one of the things that that helped me get through is I was I was going to get through I was going to die trying. I didn't really have a a fallout plan and call it perfect call it arrogance or or whatever you want well, to call it. That's the way it should be, right? That, there Just should be no fallout, fallout plan. plan. I was yep. like, this this is the path that I've chosen. I've I'm willing to lay my life down for the brothers that are next to me and this is what I want to do. I would I would think that the the hardest ironically of all the shitty training schools that we went to, Sear rocked me pretty good, man. <laughs> uh I did not do well without food. And that still plagues me today. Like, you know, I don't know I, too many who the, do. <laughs> dude, all the physical evolutions that we did at combat control school and ATC and all that type of stuff. Like, yeah, they were hard at times, but dude, no food for me after a couple of days, man, I was walking around in the woods, talking to trees. I was, I was out there. So Sear was ironically, <laughs> you were most people, yeah. Sears was like, oh, big deal. Sear, Sear was, was specifically tough for me. Um, and then uh, other, the other two periods in time that the pipeline that were, were very tough for me is um, the night after our final FTX at Combat Control School. We were on our way back. We were in formation, rucking back to Camp, uh, camp McCall. And I stepped in a hole for like the third time that night. 
and I tore, I gotta read it to you. I tore three tendons and ligaments in my right ankle and knocked a big hunk of bone loose. And that was the night we had finished and we were supposed to do the 15 mile ruck home the next day. So, uh, didn't get any sleep that night because my ankle was just throbbing. And I just, I went to the, the medic the morning of, taped it up, slammed half a bottle of ibuprofen and off we went. But the residual trauma and damage that I did to my ankle on that day and the walk home plagued me for the rest of my career. And essentially what it did is I was unable to dorsiflex my ankle. So basically bending back this way. Um, and so what that did is it cut down my stride length when I ran by probably 10 to 15%. Um, well, you know, people are like, well, what does that mean? Well, it basically means I couldn't run nearly as well as I used to. And, uh, it was extremely painful. And if anybody knows anything about the pipeline, once you graduate combat control school and you go down at the, at the time they were doing pre scuba at STTS, you run your nuts off. And we were doing rabbit runs, which is repeat six minute miles. And, uh, that particular time in the pipeline for me, uh, rabbit runs with the team was by far the lowest point in the pipeline for me because I was the lowest performer on team. I literally had guys pushing me on runs because if I didn't make the run, guess what? Everybody else has got to go as well. So it's and not I like oh, that guy, Jason. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like old man Diesel run, go do it again. It was like everybody go do it again. Uh, really it had. sounds like a humbling experience for you, Mike. I mean, you it were always the top dog, and now all of a sudden, you know, you 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 lose control. You don't really have control of the situation. You talk about humble pie, brother. It. it was the big. I was I I was. It was my first time in my life that I sucked at something, and making these dadgum runs was just like you talk about stress and cortisol and like the night before and I remember after runs dude I had literally ran myself almost into heat stroke three times in pre-scuba and I can tell you exactly what that feels like because when I got to dive school I got one on the AFSOC run <laughs> I don't know Connor were you on my dive you were one behind I was there yeah I, I was there I actually I think I ended up washing back from that class because I, I fell one man's and then I had to repeat but yeah. I was there when you were did that. We're sitting there waiting for Mike to come in. You know, he, he was hobbling the whole way. He comes around the corner, and I remember it was just bandy legs. His legs are going back and forth, and we're like, "You can make it!" He's on the final stretch. He's like, like a hundred meters left. Legs, and I see, see his leg just wobbling back and forth. I'm like, "He's going down! He's going down!" Knit yeah. it though. You got the you got the run. Yeah, Jason. I don't remember any of that either. Like I like the last forty five seconds of that run. I was, I was gone, completely blacked out. And then I ate shit and then everybody came, picked me up. Next thing I know, I woke up and I was in the back of the gator and they were stacking ice bags on me. And then they, you know, they did the old thermometer up the, and uh, off to the, off to the emergency room I went. So those, those are the specific times in the pipeline that were very challenging for me. Um, and it was a lot of it was due to injury in my right ankle, which I still haven't gotten fixed. And I'm trying to get that done through the VA right now. Um, but yeah, Knocking the, the tendons and ligaments and the bone pieces in my ankle and then trying to get through pre-scuba and all the runs and all that, uh, it made life really, really bad for me and the rest of the pipeline. A lot of our students don't realize that um, there is a lot of challenges beyond selection and dive school running um, you know, is second to none. Have you guys heard of Nate Wright, combat controller named Nate Wright, Hurricane Nate? So Nate Wright was, uh, he was a combat controller whenever I went through dive school. And at the time, 
PJ students would graduate PJ and doc and then you would immediately go to combat dive school and the controllers that were down there, they had got their beret already, but like you said, they were at the AST advanced skills training. Now it's called STTS. And, and, and as you guys know, the pipeline is totally restructured, but they would go to combat dive school as uh, combat controllers. Yes. That's what you guys yep. did. Right. So, so Nate shows up and I remember um, I was the top runner in my class and we were doing a three mile run evaluation and we started this run and this guy takes off in front of me and he's wearing black shorts. Okay. So the PJ students <laughs> wear blue shorts, combat control students wear black shorts. So I'm like, who is this controller out there kicking my butt on this run? And I try to catch him and I could never catch him. If I remember telling myself, Hey man, run your plan. Don't worry about this guy. Don't let him get you out of your zone. Just run your plan. You're going to catch up to him eventually. And I was like, yeah, you'll catch him eventually. Just relax. Right? So I get the run about two and a half miles and I'm like, dude, like there's no way I'm going to catch this guy. He just keeps distancing himself farther and farther. So I finish and it's the best run of my entire life. It's down there at like sea level. I end up running my three mile in 17 minutes and 30 seconds. Nate runs his three mile in 17 minutes and eight seconds. And he runs over to me and he puts his arm around me and he goes, Hey bro, I drank a fifth of Jack Daniels and smoked a half pack of cigarettes last night. And then he walked away. Uh, dude. Yep. Yep. I had a dollar. Sounds about right. So yeah, I mean, there's going to be dudes out there that are just going to, I mean, no matter how hard you prepare, no matter how hard you work, they're just genetic freaks and they're going to drive you into the ground. But really what it comes down to is being injury free and being fresh. Because if you're a stud like grandpapa Hazel, right, but you're injured, there's not much you can do yeah. about it. You so, know, I think the uh, so ironic so thing about like through? the AFSOC PT test and stuff like that, and I'm sure Connor can attest to this, is is most of our AFSOC PT studs, some of them were the like the lieutenants and the captains and stuff like that. These guys that could knock out the sub 17 three miles and you know 30 pull ups and 150 push ups and all this kind of stuff, put up these freak show numbers. But when they get into the field and you put a ruck on their back. Or, you know, you, all of a sudden it becomes a, a load-bearing evolution and, wow, the tables turn. So, um, yeah. I thought it was particularly funny because uh, – Everyone's got their weakness. Everyone's got their weakness. And, and regarding, mm -hmm. like, the aft socket at, uh, at dive school that I failed because I, I got a heat stroke on the run, um, you know, the, at the emergency room the very next day, the commandant comes in and he sees me. Um, you know, I was at the, uh, Naval salvage, uh, Naval training salvage center down in Panama city. He comes into the training room. He looks at me and he goes, how old are you? And I was like 35. And he was like, what are you doing trying to run an 18 minute three mile? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know, Sergeant. Uh, I was just trying to keep pace with the rest of the guys. It was a stupid move. I've never had that problem before. And he was like, well, here's the deal. And he was like, I either got to send you back to Holbert and you got to reclass with the next group or you got to run it again tomorrow. Uh, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I ain't going back. So I'll run it tomorrow. You ran it again. He, he met me outside. Uh, I don't know if, yeah, Connor, I don't know if you remember this or not. He met me outside in a gator and he pulled up his watch and he goes, I'm setting my watch for an eight minute mile pace and I'm going to go three miles or I'm going to go a mile and a half and turn around and come back. And he goes, you just follow me. No more, no less. And I was like, we are Sergeant. And he off he went and I just trucked right behind his gator. And that's all I did. We got to a mile and a half point, turnaround point, and I just turned back, and he was like, all right, go get with the rest of your class. So, so you did it. I did it, yeah. It's it wild, but uh, it's just ironic that, you know, these these testing and training evolutions that you do, like the standards and the, and the AFSOC, and, the, and, and they just really don't apply when you actually get down to the nitty-gritty of the job. 
fast forward in that same dive school class, I've still got like, I've still got our test dives on my phone. I was number one and number two in the class on the test dives, but I, but I could barely pass a damn ass off like on my fin times. So it's just, it's just crazy right. on, you know, I, I would, I would urge people not to get wrapped around the axle about your entry standard times. Like at the end of the day, if you can pass the minimum standards and then you can get in and get your foot in the door, you need to train for the job. Don't, don't train for the damn PT tests. They're the gatekeeper. Unfortunately, you got to pass the minimum standards, but you got to train for the job. Right. And some of our students have got set back in pre-dive for failing tank treads because they're great at egg beater kick. They've got that down, but all of a sudden they got weight on their back and they're treading water with fins on and you're utilizing entirely different muscle groups and they haven't mm -hmm. prepped for it. And maybe they don't have the genetics to get through it and they need a little bit more prep and they here's wash a, here's out. A, here's a good so tip again, for the guys. Advice. Yeah, here's a good tip for the guys. I had the same problem. Uh, my hip flexors would fatigue very, very quickly. I was never very good at flutter kicks. Um, again, I was fast twitch. All my muscle fibers are white. I don't have any endurance fibers in me whatsoever. So, so did you, know, you sink? Were you a sinker? I was a negative buoyant sinker to the oh, bottom yeah. of the big time sinker. Forward. Yeah. So here's how I got through tank treads at pre scuba. I would fail every single tank tread evolution that we would have because I'd be sitting there with my large jet fins and I'm kicking my ass off and my, my hip flexors just seize up and lock up. Well, guess what I learned to do? I incorporated, I went to extra large fins, which you can do. It's not against the rules. And I incorporated a frog kick and I breezed through tank tricks. So I would bring my legs up and I would come out to the side and I would do a big breaststroke kick right down to the bottom. And I had these massive extra large fins and I was utilizing my glutes and my adductors instead of my hip flexors. So keep that in your back pocket. All you got to do is keep your hands and your head above the water. Nobody's telling you how you can kick. You don't have to do flutter kicks. And uh, that, was, that was huge for me. I, I, I utilized it one day at pre-scuba, and I was like, this is literally 50% easier than anything I've ever tried with the flutter kicks. So keep that in the back of your mind. Yeah, it's, it sounded like as an athlete, you were able to problem solve your way through some well, of these things. It wasn't working for me. I was like, I, I, I can't pass tank treads. Yeah. I got to figure something else out. And Connor, real, real quick. We've been talking about Mike and kind of his perspective from it. Let's, let's hear your perspective, man. So how did you end up getting into the Air Force? And you were young, right? Mike said, or you said you, you show up and you see Mike and he's this big old muscle bound dude and you're just yeah. this kid. Like, what got oh. you into the Air Force, man? What were you doing so as a kid? I was 20 kid? years old when I joined the Air Force. Um, I turned 21 in basic training, actually. So um, back from that, I mean, uh, so I played hockey my whole life and I did martial arts my whole life. Uh, back between those off season, I was doing the martial arts and then during hockey season, that was my entire life. Um, my original goal was to play college hockey. Uh, I even went to some prep schools for hockey. Um, that was like basically my life. Um, my senior year playing hockey, uh, last game of this, well, it was my last game of the season. We were about to play. We actually knocked out the number one seed team. Um, I was, we were playing some other team that wasn't even that good. I went to go check a kid first shift of the game, blew out my shoulder. So my, uh, my left shoulder, I have an AC separation. So I was done after that kind of missed that entire like year of, you know, trying to make it to play college hockey. After that, so that's where I kind of took a focus on on uh, mixed martial arts because I was kind of missed my window. I mean, there's definitely time I probably could have went back and tried, but I really just got infatuated with MMA at the time. Um, the UFC started being really, really big. GSP, there's all these you know famous fighters back then that kind of it was like coming into the, the limelight, and um, I just got really got into it. So 
took a couple fights. Uh, I took my first fight. Actually, it was like two months after I graduated. I think it was June after I graduated in May. I took a fight in June. Um, went well, won my fight, kind of got hooked, hooked to the adrenaline thing about the whole fight thing. Um, I, uh, just kind of, that became my life. I didn't want to do anything else. I kind of lost sight of the whole hockey. I lost sight of, you know, wanting to go into college. So, um, I just folk put everything into mixed MMA for like a year and a half, two years. Obviously mixed martial arts is in the, is in the biggest thing for in- income. You know, you don't make a lot of money doing MMA. It's not one of those. And so, um, especially in fighting amateur and you need, you need a lot of fights. And so like at that point, my, my, my dad kind of started getting on me. He's like, Hey man, uh, you need to make a decision what you want to do with your life. You need to make, making, you know, doing construction. He's like, if you want to work, do that for the rest of your life. And I mean, I was working in Boston in the city and in the winter and, it's freaking cold as hell working up on the roof. You know what I mean? It was, it was shitty and doing, yeah, doing that, you know, how, how cold does it get? Up I mean, there? so it, it gets to, it can be up to like zero, 10 degrees, you know what I mean? 30, I mean, we'll say on average, it's like 25 to 35, 40 degrees between there. But you know, it, it, when you're on the roof working outside all day and then going to train at night. So I would do that. And then oh, I, and I, and I was still trying to be, you know, an MMA fighter. So, doing both those things together was, it was definitely a grind. <laughs> it's probably when I first learned how to like, you know, how to work hard. So, um, that's when I started looking, I was like, all right, I want to do something, you know, I got to figure my dad's like, you know, talk to the Navy. Something. So first that was it just like Mike and it's like, I saw seals. That's all I heard about. You know, they're the premier special operations. Of course. Um, of course. So, so you, you got attracted because oh, yeah. of the seals too. Absolutely. And found out about combat control. Yeah. And, and, and literally this is right around when, uh, I think, movie Active Valor. I saw, I've talked about this in another pocket. The Active Valor movie came out and that kind of got me hooked. I was like, oh, that looks badass. So I went to Navy Recruiter, started talking to that guy for a while. He and he, and he was kind of like, he wasn't giving me like, he's like, he basically made it sound like to become a Navy SEAL, it's impossible. You know, that was his perspective. And he's like, maybe you should do these jobs. And he was giving me like, you know, I don't know, services and all these other stupid jobs. And I was, and I was like, no, I don't want to do that. So um, Air Force guy, went across the hall, um, started talking to him and he actually started telling me about PJ. He was a big PJ fan. So, um, I started training for that. He told me about power rescue. Seemed really interesting. Um, started training. You wanted to fix people, Connor. You wanted to help people and not I beat them up. I wanted to. I originally, yeah, I originally wanted to help people. That sound right. <laughs> I said, well, the thing is, it's funny you said that. It's like, knowing what I know now, like this, all the skills you learn as a PJ compared to a controller. And, and if I didn't know if I was going to get out, I probably would have stuck with the PJ just because of the sheer fact that, you know, you, 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 you have a, you know, you're basically a paramedic. You can get out, you can use these skills to do a lot of different jobs on the outside. Um, it, it, but you know, I got, I got caught up in like the whole, like, you know, the, the direct action type of mission that the guy was sold me on. And, um, but anyway, so I started training for that. I went to take the test. There was an old, old time combat controller there, guy Waldo. Um, we're really hilarious dudes. He was like ripping cigarettes in the parking lot and then they giving us the test and like still did the test. He was old as hell and he, what year and he was, was doing the, he was how, doing the how test with me. What year was it? Uh, I, I couldn't, I couldn't put a number on it. I should ask him. He's, he's older than well, you like, did it. Well, well, no, how old were you? Were oh, you like 18? Oh, I was, uh, I was 19, 19, 19. Yeah. So, um, uh, 19 or 20. I was like, I just, maybe it's 20. I was like 20. Yeah. So uh, you were young. Yeah, then. I was a young. Um, so I, I, He's, he was funny. He's, he's really, he's a good personality. Uh, I, I liked him a lot. And, he, and, I, and I, I tell, I tell the story a couple of times. I was like, he, I went to go like, he's like, all right, man, you got to, what do you want to do? You want to be PJ? What am I putting you in you? PJ or a combat controller? Cause I passed the test. And actually there's a kid that was taking the test. I was supposed to go, but he failed it. But since I was there and I passed it, I took, I took his spot 
to go. And he's like, all right, um, we're gonna, he's, like, he's like, I was like, I don't know. Like, what's the best job? He's like, and he didn't like that. He's like, well, what do you want to do? You want to kill people or, or save people? And I was like, uh, I guess I want to kill people. He's like, all right, putting you as, as a CCT. So that's basically how I, and I had no. Well, he made it pretty simple idea. there for you, didn't he, Connor? Yeah, he did. No idea. And now they have a whole vectoring program that takes months and months and months, but he made it pretty easy there, I it guess. Pretty, pretty easy, yeah. So, um, yeah, I had no idea what a CCT was. And um, so I didn't, like, no idea what air traffic control was. No idea. Like, I was just, you know, 20 year old kid and whatever. So, um, yeah, fast forward to that, I got shipped out. Oh, another thing that happened around that time was the, uh, the Boston bombings. So that, that, and that kind of struck pretty home, close to home to me. Um, I had friends that were running in the Boston Marathon, and um, I was really pissed off about terrorism at that point because, you know. So you wanted to go make a difference that, after that. Yeah, it did. It made me, it made me. You it, felt the conviction. I, yeah, exactly. It, made, it was something that actually I, I remember when I was going in that, like, it, it fueled me. I remember going through selection and thinking about it, and that, and that shit fueled me. Because I was in basic training, and I remember I had my friends sending me pictures of the bombing site. You know, they they had like they where they like had like flowers and all the stuff for the people that got injured and, and died and all that stuff. They were sending me those pictures while I was in basic training. So that was something that kind of gave me a little extra fuel to like really push me push me harder when I was going through. So um, yeah, so that happened. So yeah, got stepped down to basic training. Um, met met my boy Mike Hazel. Uh, we had a couple other guys in our flight. You know we. Uh, selection was pretty good. Still, still friends with a lot of the guys. I mean, was your uh, was your was your drill instructor pretty mean or what? Did he tune you guys up? Uh, we had this one dude, Sergeant Taylor. <laughs> you guys had multiple was, like, drill instructors or what? Drill instructor, Air Force guy, drill instructor. He was like, he just thought he was really hard. I mean, me and Mike didn't didn't like him at all. But uh, yeah, it was. It, it was all right. Basic training wasn't too hard for us. Um, besides, I mean, physically it wasn't hard, but like you said, it's hard. It was hard for me in the sense that we're right. We needed to stay and keep the standards. And so me and Mike are, we're going out there and the, doing, you know, doing pushups at every single segment, you know, watching each other, helping each other, making sure we're, we're keeping our standards up because they, when we, when we went through, we didn't have like, it wasn't set up different between special operations and a normal cadet. We had normal people in, in our flights. So it wasn't like, it was something we, you know, doing pull-ups literally in our bunk beds or going outside, you know, and we can only swim, I think, a couple times to get ready. So we basically lost a lot of our, the running pace that in basic training was way slower than we needed to, to when we got to selection. So that was the hardest challenging part is finding a way to, you know, accomplish basic training and, you know, stay fit and ready to get into the pipeline. But we got ready. Anyways, we went down there, we went to pipeline. Um, I actually wasn't, wasn't really a good swimmer. Um, I, I swam a little bit like my swimming stuff all came from surfing as a surfer growing up and I didn't, wasn't any sort of a, like, you know, like high school swimmer or anything like that. So like I had, she got some water confidence and that's a big yeah. difference with swimming and water confidence. Exactly. Right? I'm very confident in the water, you no know, comfortable. I can, you know, that, and that was my home. So I was okay with that. But you know, the, the lap time it's funny because I'm like the opposite of, you know, we, I think you have to pass that pass test at first and it was just a freestyle. And then uh, where I came in last, but then once you put the fins on me, you take the F sock with the fins on. I smoked, smoked everybody because I'm all that's that. And you probably did pretty good on the underwater. Underwater swim is no problem. Yeah, and, and it, like I was very comfortable. And like I actually. So you just needed some technique. You had a good baseline. Yes. You were an athlete. You were prepared for this, but you just needed some technique. Exactly. So and and, and you, and you yeah. kind of like, you don't really learn it before then. I mean, you're learning in selection, and right, and then thank God we have pre scuba yeah, yeah. where you actually can learn the technique before we go to dive school. But when we went through, you're basically getting thrown in the pool and you're kind of like, Who, who's going to survive, you know? So, um, yeah. 
but anyways, yeah, so I made it through. I actually ended up doing really good in uh, selection, I thought. Um, air traffic control school, I struggled a little bit at first with that. Um, this, the, cause I had no idea what to expect. I didn't, I didn't no idea what air traffic control was and, and I had definitely a learning curve. So I washed back to my, my, uh, ATC class, um, reaccomplished that ended up making it through, but sucked because when I was there, it made my time being at air, we had the Christmas break when that was going on. So I was just stuck in, in Mississippi for a long time. So like I went through basically like three three classes, you know what I mean? Like, like, like it was seemed like three classes of like, just sitting there waiting. Um, finally made so it. What's and, in Mississippi. That's, is that air traffic control, air traffic school, control school for you yeah. guys? That's yeah. Keesler air force base, right? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So I went through that. Um, that's where I went through Sear. Uh, Sear wasn't too bad. Uh, lost my toenails cause I got frostbite cause I fell, fell asleep next to a fire and burnt my shoes and <laughs> I got frostbite on my toes and lost and lost my fucking toenails. Uh, so that would happen. And then, um, then I had to go to, so you pushed, you pushed through oh, yeah, it. I, pushed through. I wasn't, I wasn't stopping. Of course. Melt, melt my shoes at Sierra. I wasn't stopping going in and telling them I, me I melted my shoes. So I just was like, all right. So that's, that was actually kind of a little bit of a problem. Cause I, you know, I went through Sierra and then I went to combat control school. Then my toe was messed up when you're rocking a ton at combat control school. So I had to go through that. Um, Real quick, fellas, both of you guys hit, went through your training injured. Oh, yeah. Okay? And I tore my um, knee after that, too, it yeah. Would, it would be and, – and I would be safe to say that that's something that the instructors are looking for. Like, you know, as, as barbaric as it sounds, as savage as it sounds, instructors are looking for dudes that can get injured and still graduate selection and can still push on. Yeah. Because how many times, you know, you, we've been talking books and movies. How many books have you read? How many movies have you seen where on the op people are getting yep. injured? You know, how many times when we've been out there have somebody gotten injured or things didn't go the way that we expected them to and we had to be able to push on? Um, so I think it's really incredible that you guys were able to graduate your selection courses with injuries. And I think that possibly being an athlete in uh, both of you guys' history is what allowed you to be able to reconcile with that and figure out how to push yeah, through. Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, among other amongst things. Other, yeah, course. but I actually ended up tearing my knee wrestling when I came in. So I went to, so I fast forward from all that. I graduated, got my beret with Mike. Um, was a, we had a pretty tough, hard, hot summer class for a combat control school. Uh, went, went to dive school. Uh, I got washed back. And on my time, when I got washed back, and went home, went to go wrestling at my gym back in Massachusetts. And I, and I tore my, I, somebody was like, took me down and tore my, my uh, meniscus, my PCF. What did you get washed back for at dive school? Uh, one man's freaking. One man competency. Yeah, it was kind of, it was kind of BS, man. They, they, they took my For those that don't know what one man competency is, that's where you're going down to the bottom of the pool yeah. and you're going through this series with an instructor where they push off the wall they twist you up and around, they rip your regulator out of your mouth, and they tie it onto your steel manifold on top of your twin 80 tanks. So, so this is open circuit operations, right? And you have to trace this knot from the, the housing of the manifold, and you have to strike this knot, put the regulator back in your mouth, breathe, take one breath, and then you get surged again. They rip the regulator out of your mouth after that one breath. And you do this through a series of 10 minutes until you finally have a knot called the whammy knot, which is unstrikable. You cannot untie it. And at that point, the way that you recognize that and show that you're in control of the situation is you undo your belly band, 
bring your tanks over your head and purge your, your regulator, start breathing out of your regulator. So that's one man competency. I mean, I don't know about you guys. I feel like it, it's the ultimate challenge, but. Absolutely one of the hardest challenges. And it's the because, ultimate. Because you don't yeah. know. I mean, like you, you, you can do the pre-ditch. Sometimes you have a knot behind you that's like, you don't know if it's the right knot. You think it's the right knot. You're down there, you're messing around with it. And if you ditch it too early, and you know, that's what happened. I pre-ditched one time and then I, I got caught for not blowing bubbles. And the other time I had, I had like a- Same with me, dude. He twisted your my regulator. Sorry, my regulator. He twisted like the exhaust. The exhaust that comes out. He oh, some trickery. It. Yeah, it was some trickery. I was pretty pissed. So I was like putting out. You know, like, I traced my stuff, came back, and I'm trying to figure it out. I'm like putting it to my mouth, and I'm like, because you have a blacked out mask, so you can't see anything. Yeah, yeah. Like, What's going on here? Like, I know my respirators are here. I know this is where the mouth is supposed to be. And I just couldn't figure out because I didn't know that that part of the the, man, the respirator twist. So I kind of got screwed on that one. But whatever. So. Winter class, cold, got sent back to pre-scuba. I had to do pre-scuba again. I had to go to dive school again. There it was. So, I mean, I went through both these schools two times, uh, ATC, which is one of the hardest schools, and then I went through dive two times. And then, uh, sorry, be- between that, while I was home, I-, I tore my knee. So, I had to, like, wait for my knee to heal, have that heal up, and then go through with an, an – an, basically, an, I never really had time. I just got knee surgery this year. Um, going through school Question, school. fellas. Do you guys yeah. think – the, the fact both of you guys got injured, and I was an athlete too. Um, I was fortunate to not get injured in the pipeline. But, but question, do you guys think that maybe one of the reasons why you got injured in the pipeline is because your body had overuse as an athlete? Or was it just kind of a freak thing, couldn't have been avoided, nothing you could do about it? Mine was a freak thing. I mean, there's a lot of people step in the holes at, at, you know, at Fort Bragg in the middle of the night, under load, wearing MVGs. It's tough luck. Just tough, tough luck, luck, man. Yeah, and, and the fact that I did it three times in the course of a 12-hour period, I mean, it was just gradual ripping and tearing of the tendons and ligaments and the last one just kind of snapped it all through so but yeah I think it's just it's just tough luck man I mean I think shin splints are probably the kiss of death in the pipeline those are those are just uh injuries that some people just can't recover from um backs knees elbows shoulders I mean sometimes you can just push through but on shin splints for the amount of rucking and running um on pavement that uh, you're going to be expected to do if you can take care of your shins and, and just, you know, it's, it's tough to recover from, but yeah, mine particularly, was just a freak accident. I don't think, uh, having, I don't think being a high mileage vehicle for me, uh, if anything, being a high mileage vehicle was probably beneficial because I, I had a training load and training volume behind me. So some, some people call it in like in athletics, you'll hear the word, uh, training years. So I had, you know, 15, 17 years of training prior to the pipeline. So I had a really good training base um, where I wouldn't detrain that much. So if I were to stop lifting or running altogether, my, my baseline fitness would last longer than say your 18 or 19 year old uh, guy that was coming through. So my injury specifically was just bad luck and it happens. Roger. And that's just the way it's going to be. I mean, you may get dealt a, a crappy hand of cards, but you got to show your teammates and your instructors that you can still get through it. And, and they're going to work with you too. They're going to give you the, the best medical treatment they can. They'll give you a setback. You know, they're, they're reasonable people. So, yeah. Um, but Con- Connor, back to you, man. Um, you graduated the pipeline. You guys obviously talked a little bit about your graduation together. We talked about pirates. Where did you end up getting stationed at after you graduated? So I ended up getting stationed up at JBL in Washington, which is actually a really awesome uh, duty station. Is that the 22nd Special Tactics Squad? Yeah, that was the 22nd. Um, it was cool because I was, I'm from the East Coast, and I really didn't get to see that side of the country too much. 
my, my, during my life. So it was cool to get out there and spend a majority of my time up and down the, the West, sorry, it's the East Coast. The West so from Coast. Boston to Tacoma. Yeah. Boston, yeah. Oh, so, it's beautiful there too, man. Beautiful, yeah. It really is. Really cool. Just cool. I got to see California a lot. I love California. Um, going out Arizona, doing jump trips. I mean, it was, it was really, and I had a good time. And I got stationed with some of my good friends and um, being there. I got, I got a deployment to Afghanistan. Um, which was good. I, I, I actually would never got a chance to be a JTAC. So, um, I did, I did get to, I did a, uh, a survey deployment, but I was really lucky where I got to get out and go get with the teams. Um, just because of the JTAC for requesting help, requesting guys to go out there and help them out. And so I got to get out there with the teams and, and you know, do my job and, and it was really good. So I enjoyed it. And I did a lot of work when I was deployed too. It wasn't just like, I was out there doing a lot of, um, you know, setting up airfields and stuff like, you know, I was actually doing the combat control job. So I couldn't really ask for anything more. And I, I, I enjoyed it. Um, so when I got done with my, my, you know, my duty station, I came back, I only had a year left and I was going re- to re-enlist. I was thinking about going to the guard, but then I started training then. And um, it just, it just kind of, for MMA. Yeah. I got really bad. Even while I was out in Afghanistan, I started picking up the gloves a little bit, started hitting the bag, you know, starting, as they kind of started to miss it a lot. And then um, when I was out there and I started, when I came back, I, I really kind of focused back in into MMA and training and it just kind of took off. And I think it was all the stuff that I learned through the military, um, like all the training, how to grind, like everything we were talking about in the beginning of the podcast, how to like, my m- mental state was tougher and stronger. I was a little bit older now, you know, between 20 and 20, 27, uh, like everything, it was kind of clicking. I feel like my athletic ability was better and fighting just became a lot better for me. So that's um, funny you say that, Connor, because that's the way I felt when I walked on the U of A football team. I got cut the first time, by the way, yeah. and that was one of the first times in my life where I actually thought about quitting on a goal. I was like, man, you know, like you're in way over your head. But then I realized, dude, like you didn't try out for this team not being ready. You were ready. You had a bad day and you can't let one bad day hold you back yeah. from this dream. And I remember having to wait four and a half months to try out again and getting on that team and I think you, know, you, you said it best, like one of the, the primary differences between being on a athletics team and being in a special operations environment is the deployment aspect. Like football, for example, you have one game a week versus baseball, you're playing a lot of games in the week. Basketball, you're playing a lot of games throughout the week. But in football, you prep, you do all of that for one game. And then the game's over and you have you know, 13, 14 games if you're having a great season versus special operations you're training for years and years and years and then you get that one deployment and on that one deployment you may get one mission or no missions or three a day you have no idea what you're going to get but i would say what do you guys think like that would be one of the primary differences like at least i saw kind of transitioning out from the military into division one athletics is that you have one game a week like you know that that game's coming you're preparing for it versus on a deployment, you don't, you're, pre- you're prepared for it, but you don't know when it's going to come. And it could come three times a day, one time a day. It may never come. You may have to sit out there the entire time. I mean, what do you guys think is, is the, the biggest difference game day um, athletics-wise versus special operator? I, think I totally agree with you, man. Like, that's what I felt like on my deployment. And, and that's what I felt like on, like on like the missions I got to go out on. That's exactly how I felt. I mean, I knew like, cause I, and I had a pretty good idea where I was going to be. I'm like, this is my, my, my chance to do it. But it was good because I felt prepared. And I felt like all that hard work that I did, I get to actually, you know, use it a little bit. And that was, that, that's what was, that's what was really nice. You know what I mean? Like, 
and I did feel like it, it, it is, it was, and I thought, I think that mostly hit me after is like all that training I did was for this one, you know, this small little time, you know what I mean? It's probably 99 to 0.5%, you know what I mean? Of actually doing the 99% training and 0.5 or even less than that of actually doing your job in, in, um, but, but you have to, you have to be that prepared to go out there and do something that's so crucial and so critical of being, you know, life or death. You have to be, you know, it has to be 99 and two, this little bit of actually doing the job. So it was, it was, it was a good experience for me. Connor, real quick question for you. Like my six year enlistment was up in 2014 and that's when I made the U of A football team was in 2014. So I had the, the opportunity to transition out of the military while still being a part of, of a team, still being a part of a brotherhood, having a mission, having something to work towards, being able to physically train towards something. It, it was a good transition for me. Um, but I noticed a lot of differences in my teammates, obviously because of age. A lot of my teammates were 19 years old, 18 years old. I think the oldest guy on the team besides me, I was 26 when I first made the team. Oldest guy besides, not quite as old as Mike, but uh, oldest guy on the team besides me is 24. And I noticed the primary difference was a sense of selflessness on the special operator teams versus a sense of selfishness on the division one football teams and it wasn't that guys were trying to to act that way it's that they hadn't been programmed to think about other people and their teammates first it was like okay like this is about me this is about my career this is about getting a starting position this is about getting drafted like it's all about me right versus on the special operator in any type of team whether it be a seal team combat control team pj team special forces group you're trying to look out for your teammates first and so whether it be like guys coming in and like turning the computers on for you or like setting up your gear or just trying to hook you up or dudes that were coming in early and staying late i noticed that a lot more in special operations versus a division one football environment. What, what do you guys think about that? Did you, did you just see like better teammates in general? Or I feel like they're the best teammates I ever had in operations, but. Yeah, uh, and that, that's one of the things that actually turned me off of uh, athletics. When I retired in 2012, um, there's, there's a couple articles out there on the internet. Uh, you could probably Google them. Like, even if I had not blown my elbow out, made the Olympic team in 2012, won a gold medal, won a world record. All, even if all of that had happened, I was still putting my pants down around my ankles and walking out with my hands in the air. I was so disgusted with professional athletics because of the, the politics and the corruption and the, the me monsters. And, and think about it, in track and field, it's an individual sport, right? And you don't have, you know, yeah, you go over to a world championship as a team USA, but you compete as an individual. And a lot of how well your success is on the financial aspect of the house is how well you market yourself. So there's a lot of chest thumping and there's a lot of me monstering and there's a lot of, hey, look how great I am. And that never, ever really resonated with me. And it was something that I was not comfortable with. I actually had a conversation, uh, my ex-wife's brother-in-law was uh, a former Red Bull uh, sports marketing director for the United States. And I remember having a conversation with him. This is like, you know, how is it that these people sign these, you know, six figure contracts of Red Bull? And he was just like, you know, that A, they're good in their chosen career field and then B, they're marketable. Like they're, they have something that's edgy about them. And so I had that conversation and, and that, that was kind of like the, my transformation Well, all of a sudden I was like, well, shit, you know, I'm going to wear, you know, earrings. I'm going to put double earrings in and try to be edgy, you know, and 
that that was a big deal in Europe. Like all the pro soccer players who are making lots of money on endorsement sale, you know, it was the earrings thing. It was like so, like trying to self promote, trying to say, hey, self promote. And, and I and and never football too. It's like yeah, you got to build up your Instagram page so you yeah. can make yourself more draftable and stuff. Yeah. And it's totally the opposite in special operations. It's yeah. like, dude, you better stay under the radar. Yeah. Be a quiet professional. Stay yep. out of the spotlight. I was in a, I was in a hurry to ditch that lifestyle. And yeah. when I did, like when I retired in 2012, I actually got rid of all my social media in 2010 and just got it back this past January. Um, I just recommend that for our students as well to just get off or make their social media private and all that. I I would would, private at least, especially, especially as a student is the fact that, you know, the instructors have social media and they're going to be looking at you too. And they want to see what kind of person you are. And, and they, they just have, you just, you're just giving them, don't give them any ammo. Yeah. They're giving giving them ammunition to fire at you and figure out a reason not to like you or whatever. more, more importantly, the, you know, social media is the world's toilet for unsolicited information. You're going to find a lot of bad misinformation, a lot of armchair quarterbacks, a lot of trolls who want to shoot holes in, in, in things. Um, and if you have a story to tell, like all of us do, um, social media is a great platform to, to advertise that story and, and give back and help educate and, and help train the next generation. But I certainly wouldn't get wrapped up in living my life in social media and trying to impress people uh, with what you're doing on social media because social media is 90% bullshit. You know, photos are filtered, stories are edited, lighting, and like, it's just a toilet for that type of information. So, but yeah, if you're planning on going into the special operations career, not only for OPSEC reasons, but just for like your own self-protection when you get into the pipeline, I would go dark. There should be no Google, no Googling of you or anything. I was cursed when I got in because day one, minute one, hey, mount the bar. I mount the bar and all of a sudden I got this Olympic rings tattoo on the inside of my arm. And they're like, what is that? So I was screwed. I couldn't hide from that. Um, but you were already in the spotlight. I was already in the spotlight. So if you can not do that, if you can be the gray man and just make life easier on you and just be like, oh, this guy shows up on time every day with the right attitude and the right equipment, you're going to be fine. I agree. Fine. And then that's another thing for me coming out of the career field. And, um, you know, my, my, my profile was private just until I, until I got out. And then, you know, and then I kind of came out and started fighting and, and my social media has gone, is grown a lot. And, but, and, and I just have this, it, for me, it just from being on the team and the way we, you know, people give you kind of give you shit about stuff that when you were in, and you know, you know, like posting a cool guy picture, right. You know, we, I mean, we do that now to promote myself as a fighter and as for the special operations career field. I, and now um, I post those pictures and stuff because it helps me promote myself because the more followers, the more likes I get, the better chance I get to be in the UFC. And I mean, I'm you're, just, you're out I, now. I, you're not, you're not operating. I, I'm not operating. I mean, there's no reason for me not to do it. And that's why I do it. But it still feels uncomfortable for me to post those pictures sometimes just because of what the, the background I came from. And, they, and it's just because if I was on the teams and I did this guy, we'd be giving, I'd be walking to the team room and just getting shit on. You know what I mean? So it's just something to think about. Like that's going to happen no matter what. Yeah. yeah. They're going to, they're going to, no matter part, what. This is part of the career field, right? I mean, it, it, guys are going to bust your balls, yeah. you know, to show love. I mean, and and there's love for it too. too. I, mean, I get guys, most of the guys, you know, loving what I'm doing right now. So. At the end of the day, Connor, you're doing great things for the career field. So keep doing what you do. Appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guarantee you, dude, Connor, you show up to a fight and you're rocking a special warfare banner and you got your controller shirts on. People are in the crowd going, the hell is that? Yeah, exactly. Maybe, maybe you have more people going combat control instead of SEALs. So, you know, if you have people hating on That's you. That's the goal. That's the goal. Guy pictures, you know, maybe cool. they can focus on the positives, right? <laughs> yeah. 
So fellas, real quick, what do you guys think of some of the primary differences between the athletes that you worked with and the operators you work with character trait wise? Ego. Yeah. I think, I think the, I think the pipeline, you know, perfect example is me. It's like, I, I never really failed at anything. Like I always had a successful academic and athletic career and I showed up to the, to the pipeline, um, not advertising that, but it was well known. And that was quickly taken away from me. I, I, I quit, I showed up at, I was 34 years old with a master's degree and showed up and got the same rank as a, as someone coming out of high school, you know? And so your, your, your ego and who you think you are is stripped down and you you become one of the team and you are not special. You have to do the exact same thing everybody else does. And nobody gives a shit about your background or what you've done in the past. And I think that that's is, uh, I think that's one of the biggest difference that I saw is, you know, you get invested in your team's success as a professional athlete. It's all about your individual success, you know, and, and it's exploded 20 fold over the last 10 years and last decade. Like you see a social uh, media. This is one of the things, this is why I almost can't even watch collegiate football or NCAA football anymore. You'll see a guy like, make an open field tackle, like, you know, that's nothing spectacular. And the dude yeah. gets up and he pops his chin strap and he walks around and he does this. I'm like, dude, you did your and job. They're losing by 30. You did your job. What are you doing? Get back in the huddle. Like I, I, I just, it's exploded tenfold. And I, I, I have this deep seated hatred for that type of mentality and that type of personality in a team environment. I just absolutely drives me crazy. And it all started back in, you know, the late nineties with Dion Sanders and Michael Irvin and all these showboat dudes. And like, they were the genesis of all that. And for some strange reason, the young kids today have drank the Kool-Aid. They watch the YouTube, they watch the Instagram and they think that that's how you get ahead in athletics. And, yeah. uh, you have to market yourself, but you have to market yourself in a way that is, is not, you're not going to look back on it in 10 or 15 years and be like, Shh, what the hell was I thinking? I'll give you one example. We'll move over to Connor. There's a, there's this long jumper that I used to compete with. He was from France. He's an idiot. And he would jump with one arm out of his singlet. If you can imagine that. So most guys, you know, work at like a tight top, like a, a singlet, a tight one, you know, like a, like a tank top. This dude would take his arm out of it and wear it. So it was like hanging off of him diagonal because he was trying to be edgy and he wasn't even that good. And he got laughed out of a lot of stadiums. And that's something I guarantee you 10 years from now, 15 years from now, if he has a family or a kid or something like that, and someone pulls up a picture of him long jumping and he's got one arm in his singlet and his tits hanging out. And the people are like, what happened to your uniform? Oh, I was trying to be special. You know, you got to be able gotta to back be, I mean, it up. If you're jumping world records and yeah, you can pull it off. But man, I just, I just hate that, that it's all about ego in, in, the, yeah. in the professional athletes and the NCAA, it's, it's all ego. In, in the special operator team room, it's about your brothers and your teammates. That's the biggest difference. And I mean, the egos are there, but dudes are trying. They're making a conscious effort to put those egos aside and be there for their teammates. They're trying, you know. Connor, what do you think, man? I mean, you, you're an MMA fighter, so it's an individual sport, but you have an entire team that you're working with to train you. So it is still a team environment, but when it comes to game day, it's individual. Yes. What do you think, so man? it's funny. I have to say, out of most sports I play, a lot of fighters come from very humble beginnings. You know what I mean? Um, I think a lot of collegiate, like when you could talk about like uh, ho- like other sports I play, like hockey teams or football teams and all this stuff. Um, you know, they have like this this college this college line like uh, trail they go where they're like you know all star in high school. Everybody knows. 
who they are, and then they go to play college, and they're these, you know, these all-stars in college, everybody knows who they are, and everything's given to them. I think a lot of fighters, they have actually, it's the, kind of the opposite, you know, nobody really knows who they are until they really make a name for themselves, and you have to really work hard to get there and from being kind of humble beginnings, a lot of these fighters. So a lot of the guys I work with are, right now are really, really good dudes, to be honest. Um, and MMA is a weird sport. It's like you got to work hard to help your buddies get ready for a fight. So if I have a teammate, teammate getting ready for a fight, I have to be willing to get punched by him more than he's – I'm willing to dish out the, you know, get him. I can't hurt the guy when he's getting ready for a fight. I have to be able to take the damage for him to get him ready for his fight. And that's a little bit different than most sports. So it's like I got to be a punch bag for a guy, you know. So he can, you know, so he can prepare and get, get himself ready. And um, I'm, I have to be willing to give up that part of me to do that. So I think that's pretty interesting about the sport. And, and so and you really do, it's a really is a team sport besides on fight day. And, um, you know, and then that's why it's, 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 I'm, I'm more nervous usually nowadays when I have a teammate fighting than when I'm fighting for myself. So, and I'm, I'm fighting for myself. I'm like, I got this. I'm good. I'm not worried. But when I get a teammate in there, I'm like, seen all the hard work he's put in, the weight cuts, the uh, dieting. And the thing about martial arts and, and, and compared to other sports is it's, it's so strict with the diet. And, um, and the last and last, I mean, you guys were, we were talking about it in the pipeline. And I think that's another thing that's helped me is, you know, we we're always hungry in the pipeline and, and dealing with sleep. But I, I can now I can use the sleep, you know, I can get as much sleep as I want, but I got to always deal with, with, you know, cutting those calories to lose. I mean, I'm walking around 165 to 170 and I fight at 145. So I've got to really focus on eight weeks out. You know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a grind for me. But I, I know it's not as bad as a two-and-a-half-year grind that I did before. So it's only at the, I take a little short increments and where I'm mentally tough and I can deal with it now than, than I could before. So, um, But uh, sports-wise, like, so it's, it's funny that we talk about, like, so I feel like there's two phases of the, the, the military career that really helps me out for my uh, my martial arts career and it's the first phase was say like pipeline that taught me how to like really you know grind and you know really deal with adversity and make and suck up all the suck it up and then on the second part when I became uh, when I got on team is having those athletic coaches who really taught you how to lift correctly and having all the facilities and honestly I mean for people I don't really know when you when you're, when you're in special operations in the air force especially I mean you have the best gyms ever I mean I had some beautiful gems that I got to train out with, with guys, like you said, like, like who were, you know, giving you massages, who were, um, you know, any kind of physical therapist thing you need, any, anything you need. Once you get on team, once you make it to be a combat controller, I had all those things at my, um, a, a, available for me. And I think that was huge. Like to deal with going from all that shitty stuff and then having that stuff, it helped me a lot. I got so much stronger. I, I could train correctly. I could work on the things I wasn't good at. And that helped me um, prepare myself for my professional athlete career right now. So, and I learned how to work out. I learned how to do things correctly. So, as yeah, you bring up good facilities too, man. I gotta say, like the human performance program that the Air Force has implemented right now among the teams is incredible. Every team has a physical therapist, a nutritionist. Uh, most teams have a gym. If not all the teams have a gym now, you are getting treated like a Division One athlete. It's incredible. Uh, the Division I uh, football program gyms, I don't really think that you can top those. Uh, I mean, the U of A football gym, I've never seen anything like it. Now, mind you, I heard Alabama's gym was, was incredible, but, oh, man, I just remember walking into the U of A football gym as a 26-year-old guy and just thinking, man, like, enjoy this because this is going to be over soon, like, soak in every moment. And the cool thing was is you had 
unlimited access to the gym. So if you want to go work out, you go in there, you use your cat card. It was our, our U of A access card and you go into the gym and you get your workout and blast the music. And man, I just remember going in there twice a day and just soaking it up, man. It was incredible. So it really is cool to see the change that the Air Force and all of special warfare in general across the branches has made in implementing new human performance programs. Human performance programs being anything that will make you better at your craft, whether it be sleep, um, nutrition, like Connor was bringing up, um, communication, your ability to work with others, um, your mental health, and of course your physical performance. So anything that you can do to be a better warfighter, that would be um, the human performance programs that you guys are seeing. So, and then only the only problem with it is that you can only use it when you're home station, and the, and the fact of yeah. these jobs is your is your TDY and you're gone. Most, oh. most of the year, even though when you're not deployed, you're back and you're out the door. So you can only use it those weeks you're home. And so it's really nice to have something to really take care of yourself while you're home. But the fact of the matter is you're not going to get it, you know, because you're still going out to the field to practice the job and you're still doing, you know, you're still living on the road, living in hotels a lot as a combat controller, as a PJ. So, you know, there's that. All right, there's gentlemen, we're about to be running out of time here and we're going to open it up to all the students for live Q&A. Um, so just to kind of end it here, Connor, would you mind telling us about what you're doing now how we can find you, how we can support you. Talk to us, man. Yep. Uh, so for Nate now, I'm, I am uh, currently fighting professional MMA at a Lausanne MMA, fighting in this league called Cage Titans. Um, right now, we're, you know, we're trying to get as many fights as we can together this year to try to make it up. My goal is either get onto Contender Series, Dana White's Contender Series. Um, I was hoping to get it by this summer, but we, who knows with everything that's going on, there's no fights going on. Um, following that, we're just going to try to get as many fights and try to get my work my way up to the UFC. You can follow me at, on Instagram as the controller MMA. Um, pretty appreciate the follow. It helps me out a lot. The more followers I get, the better chance, you know, I get the looks from the UFC and that's, and that's my goal. Um, I, I mean, I, I want to represent the career field as combat of combat control and our special warfare in general and special operations in general. Um, so as you know, I was trying to you know live out this live out this dream and you know represent show show everybody who we are because like you said everybody knows who the seal is nobody knows who these special warfare operators are and I think we are some of the best operators in the world so I'm trying to put that out there for the world to see. Amen. Good to hear from you, Connor. Support Connor. He'll have some fights coming up soon. Check out his Instagram page. You'll get updates on that. Uh, support him by picking up a shirt. I know I picked up one, one of my uh, controller MMA shirts. Oh, yeah. And I rock it a couple Thank times you, a week. I got a ton of shirts. I got boxes here for sale. So all you got to do is DM me and we'll, uh, I'll send one over to you, Mike. I need the black one. I got the black one. Are you a large? Large or large? Large. 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 <laughs> And Mike, tell us about what you're doing now, man. How do we get a hold of you? Uh, as well? yeah. So I got a I got a day job right now because I got a I got a family and bills. Uh, so I'm a program manager um, uh, on a very rewarding job stateside. Uh, I run a, a Kazavak response team for the task force out of East Africa. So I I employ a lot of tier one PJs uh, who are doing great things over in East Africa, keeping our guys safe. So that's my day job. Uh, what I'm super passionate about, like I said earlier, I'm starting my PhD in human and health performance uh, in this August. Um, I spent the last 20 years literally destroying my body. And I want to spend the next 20 years learning how to fix it and how to live longer and healthier and happier. So I'm trying to take this holistic approach on um, how do you take the very two different careers that I've had throughout athletics and special operations. And I've learned a lot. And I feel like I've, uh, I've got a lot to give back. So I know Jason, you and I are both working on some side projects in which we can give back to the next generation of guys coming through. Um, I want to make it very clear that I, I consider myself a human performance guru. I'm not an operator guru. I, you, you can find plenty of SEALs and Rangers down there that have done 
a lot of great things uh, overseas, kicking indoors and and doing missions that I never got a chance to be a part of as an operator. Um, so that's not what I want to uh, go down the road and do. What I want to do is I want to help get guys get ready so that they make the best decisions and choices going into whichever career, career field that they choose and hopefully give them some tools and tricks of the trade to, to provide some longevity, uh, whether it be nutrition, uh, recovery, um, psychological issues, uh, you know, stress is a big deal and uh, learning how to deal with stress and, and um, all the tools that you can apply, uh, the Jedi mind tricks, so to speak, that a lot of special operators learn. So that's really what I want to do. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Olympic.operator. Um, I don't have a huge presence on there, but I'm working on it because I got a day job, so I don't spend too much time on there. Uh, but every now and then I'll throw something up on there. And, um, you know, I'm looking to being much more proactive with SOCOM athlete and, and you, Jason, in uh, future endeavors and just really uh, sharpening the skills of the next generation warfighter, man. That's really what I'm... Uh, that's really what I'm passionate about. Well, thanks for coming on tonight, fellas. And you guys have been a huge part of this program. Instructor Mike, Instructor Connor have both been special guests at our Hell Days. Um, Mike is out there in the Southern California area. He's a member of our Northern California, Southern California, excuse me, Northern California, Los Angeles, and San Diego group training chats. And Connor is uh, in the New England group training chat. Um, they host regular training in those areas. Um, like I said, they've been special guests at our Hell Days, and they've been a huge part of our program. So for our students out there, make sure you reach out to these guys um, as mentors, as guys that can help you prep to become special operators. So again, fellas, thank you so much for your time tonight. Um, incredible conversation, comparing and contrasting athletes to special operators. And we look forward to go ahead and getting rolling with this Q&A with the students. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jay. And we're going to do a little bit of live Q&A with you guys. We are going to be discussing similarities and differences, comparing and contrasting special operators versus elite athletes. So we understand that you guys, as students and as candidates training for special operations, have all kinds of questions. However, let's keep it pertinent to the type of questions that Mike, myself, and Connor can answer and add expertise on. So we got our first order of questions. Let's go ahead and get our first guy on here. Go ahead. Uh, my initial question is, um, what's, so I know like, uh, like Jason, you, um, you were an athlete before, uh, you were a PJ and, um, of course, uh, Mr. Matthews, you, you were a, uh, you, you became a fighter, uh, after. Yeah. So I've been doing martial arts my whole life and, um, I've been, I was fighting before I joined the military, but I just kind of came back to it after I got doing my, my career in the military as a combat controller. Okay. So like, what's, what's something that y'all noticed like from athletes before they join uh, special operations um, versus um, what makes like a good special operator coming from an athlete perspective versus someone who's um, not exactly as experienced with teamwork, but is still winds up going through the pipeline. Do you guys mind if I take that one? Yeah. I can tell you. All right. Right. I think it's a great question. Um, so I want to actually go deeper than that and actually say that it, we talked about this earlier, Connor and Mike and myself is that you cannot necessarily group athletics into a whole because you have team sports and you have individual sports. You have sports where you're throwing a ball. You have sports where you may be throwing a ball in one position, but another position, your job is to knock somebody on their butt every single play, right? So each position is different. Each sport is different. But when it comes down to athletics and being an athlete and what you can attribute to becoming a special operator, I'll tell you that I would say 75 plus percent of PJs that I served with were not athletes prior to coming in. However, they went out and they were climbers. Um, they ran, they swam, 
They uh, were adventurers. They did things like that, you know, things that I hadn't necessarily done before. And it was, it was interesting because I didn't meet a whole lot of PJs that were jocks in high school or were playing college sports before they went in. A lot of them were mountain climbers or some type of adventurer, like I said. And I remember going through mountain phase and it never touched a carabiner before and just getting my butt kicked in mountain phase because these guys were so savvy with ropes and tying knots and working pulleys and carabiners. And I didn't speak that language. But one language I did speak was how to operate under pressure, how to communicate with teammates, how to get a job done. Right. So I would say those would be some of the biggest attributes. What do you think, Connor? Um, yeah. So something to add on to that is like, like kind of what we were talking about earlier. It's, it's not, it's not per se like a, a being physical, obviously is going to help you. Like what Jason said, being physical in anything is going to help you. It's, it's, but it's really dealing with adversity is going to be the biggest thing. If you know how to deal with adversity, and I think that's what sports do for a lot of us. It teaches us growing up how to deal with those adversities, you know, being on a team, working hard and doing physical things to accomplish goals. And that's what basically teams are, is just doing physical, you know, like athletic things to accomplish a goal together with people. So you have to learn that. It's like, it's two things. It's you got, it's be, you have to be able to do things physically like in your life. And yet it has to be kind of like a normal thing to you. It's going to help you out being, being a, um, a special operator. And at the same time, um, is, is just getting along with people. You know what I mean? You're working with guys being a good teammate. Um, those skills do qual- uh, carry over into being a, 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 a operator for sure. If you, if it's your first time, if you did like a, a if you do a team sport or, you know, um, for fighting is one, but was it, was it, uh, give me an example for another team, another sport that is, it's not a team sport. It's just a, uh, individual sport. Um, but if you say you just never really worked together with a team, but you're a physical stud and you got on teams, your first time working with teammates and you have no, no skill at that. It's, it's definitely gonna, you're going to see effects from that for sure. I would say that. So Connor, what would you say some of the primary differences between uh, teammate aspect would be between athletics and special operators? Mike, you want to cover this on this one? Like differences? Yeah. So I'll, I'll go over differences in a second, but I'll touch back on the original question and I'll try to split it up into two different two different avenues. So um, the first thing that I'd like to talk about is, is what exactly does sport do that help can help you prepare for your, for your military career. And then what type of sport would benefit you moving into your military career. So I think anybody who's competed in a, in a competitive sport, whether it be just at the high school or collegiate level, or even at a professional level, you have some aspect of stress because you have a competition that you're prepping for and you understand that, the buildup to game day in whatever capacity it may be, but even if it's an individual sport and like, like if you're a triathlete, like when you're on the, on the start line and the guys get ready to hit the gun, like there's stress that's involved. It's, it's cortisol is pumping through your body. Um, so I think if, if you're engrossed in some type of sport prior to your military career, you're going to have some type of comprehension of what stress feels like, and you're going to be better suited to deal with it when you get to the military day one minute one when you get off the bus at basic training you're going to get hit with stress some of you guys who are already prior service you know that and depending on your body's ability your mental ability to deal with that stress the better off you're going to be um, so that's what i would say is one avenue of that sports definitely prepare you for the pipeline or for military career because you have some type of comprehension on how to deal with stress the second is is you know what type of athlete or what type of sports i think it's a no-brainer for a pipeline, a special operations pipeline, you have to be an endurance machine. You have to be able to run, jump, swim, hours and hours and hours, nonstop, malnourished, underslept, overstressed, 
and totally task saturated and you got to be really good at it. So, um, if you find yourself in endurance event sports, like, you know, if you find, if you just want to be a competitive, tough mutter rudder, tough, tough, what do they call those things? Tough mutter runner. Is that what it is? Um, I mean, those are huge. Triathletes are huge. Um, basically anybody who's just an endurance machine is going to succeed in the pipeline on the physical aspect because you're used to doing that. Um, I always tell people that, uh, the better runner you're going to be the, or the better runner you can be going into the pipeline, the easier the pipeline is going to be on you because before you get the shit kicked out of you, you're going to, they're going to run you. Agreed, so they 100%. pre-fatigue you, pre-fatigue you in order to beat you. Um, and so the better you can breeze through the pre-fatigue session, the easier the beat downs are going to be. So if you can breeze through a six, seven, eight, nine mile long, slow distance where you're getting dropped on your run, if you can breeze through that before the real beating starts, the better off you're going to be. But if you blow your wad like I would on a long, slow distance run and be seeing Jesus at mile eight and nine before you even really got smoked, it makes things pretty challenging. So I would say those are the two aspects that you need to, to understand with athletics and sports in general, moving into a military pipeline, special operations pipeline specifically. Um, Connor and, and, and Jason and I spoke briefly about like the differences between what I've experienced between professional athletics and, and, and military teammates, it's, it's all about ego, you know, in, in professional athletes, it's, it's how, how fast, right, real, how real well. quick, what, what's, can you define ego? Sorry to put you on the spot, but your self story, what's ego, your self story. It's, it's, it's who you think you are based on your previous accolades. When you show up to a team environment, no one gives a fuck who you are when you show up to a team environment. You know, nobody cares about your previous accolades. Nobody cares if you look like Captain America. You, you, the, the, the pipeline and, and special operations pipelines in general are designed, custom tailored to weed out people who do not put an emphasis on we and they put an emphasis on me. If you are more self-focused on your success and your survival getting through the pipeline, you will not make it. You have to turn that focus outward into your teammates and focus on we. What can we do get through, to get through this collectively? And ego is the biggest hindrance to that. If you walk in and you think that I shouldn't have to do this or I should breeze through this because of who I am and what my background and what my reputation is or my previous sports, that, that, will, that will cripple you in a heartbeat. So I think hands down, it's ego. You just show up as the, as the humble, quiet professional. You keep your head down. You be a good teammate. And do what you're told. Show up with the right attitude and the right equipment every day, and you're going to be fine. Solid question, Ryan. Jackson, go ahead next. So you guys kind of touched on a couple of my questions already. So uh, my other one, uh, I would say, is uh, as far as the uh, competitiveness of both uh, that higher tier level of athletics and um, special operations, uh, how do they compare? Like, uh, are they about the same or are people a little bit more extra competitive in the special operations uh, community as opposed to uh, the athletics? That's a good question. And I would say in my, for my experience is uh, probably in the, the competitive people and most competitive people I ever worked with is, is, is a guy in the special operations community. Again, they're competitive about everything. The thing is about our job is we have to do so, we have to learn so many different skill sets and so many different, um, we just have so many things, different things we have to do. And it's always kind of turns into a little competition with our friends and not in, not in a negative way, in a positive way of being the best at whatever we're doing. We're always trying to be the best at something. So it's like, 
so I see the guys, you know, if it's, you know, learning how to do something on a computer, you know, that I, you see, you see operators take the initiative and be really, really competitive with that. If it's, you know, learning a, a rope system for the first time, we're going to see who can, who can get that rope system down fastest, the best and the quickest. And you know what I mean? That, so I would say, um, that's the difference between sports, you know, sports, yeah, you're going to be obviously competitive because that's where sports are. You're competing a sport against each other, but you know, maybe you're just com competitive about that one sport. Special operators tend to be really competitive in everything they do for sure. And there's also the accountability aspect too. Like as a special operator, you're going to be looking out after your teammates. You're going to be trying to hold them up to this standard and raise that bar. And you're always looking out for them instead of you. I thought that was the biggest difference too. Yeah, I agree with that. You guys nailed that one. Um, I think uh, everybody who shows up and and wants to be a special operator is going to have a type A alpha, you know, uh, background mentality where they want to be competitive and they want to be the best of the best. Most people, um, you got you got to be cautious with that and a pipeline. You have to scale your competitiveness. Um, if you if you become over competitive in physical evolutions, that can also hinder you later on. Um, I think probably the best advice that I was ever given, um, you know, and granted I went into the pipeline in my mid thirties after being an Olympic athlete, I could have done certain things physically in the pipeline a whole lot harder and a whole lot faster and a whole lot better than I did. But I chose to scale that for survivability later on in the pipeline. So, um, I would tell all of you guys that if you want to be competitive, uh, once you start your, your pipeline career, I would challenge you guys to be competitive in the intangibles. Meaning I would challenge you to be competitive in the terms of how can I be a better teammate than that guy? How yeah. can I be the most helpful person on this team? How can I be the least selfish person on this team? Because believe it or not, you can be a shitty physical performer. And we've seen Connor and Jason and I have seen this throughout the pipeline in the team, shitty physical performer, slow runner, slow swimmer, lacking on PT, but a fucking fantastic teammate. And will give you the shirt off his back and guys will go to bat for you and pull you through because they want you on their team. Vice versa, the physical studs, the captain Americas, the D one all American scholarship athletes that show up thinking, look at me, dump on their chest, the spotlight Rangers, as we call them. They will, the team will ostracize those guys and then we'll turn their back on them and they will spit them out the backside because they're not a team player. So if you're talking about being competitive, be competitive in the things that are going to benefit your team. Um, if you want to be competitive in physical evolutions, just because it's an ego thing, you can do that, but you need to be smart about it because it depends on what pipeline you're getting to. They're long, man. Like air, combat control, pararescue, you're looking at over two and a half years. If you get through every time, first time without a washback or an injury. You know, if you're looking at buds or, or rangers and shit like that, man, you're looking at over a year of getting your dick kicked in. So you got to be, you got to be selective on where you're competitive. And fellas, I want to take a tangent on that real quick and talk a little bit about social media. Um, Connor can also caveat on this. When it comes to being an athlete, your social media presence now, and obviously we don't like this, but it's just the way it is. Your social media presence actually dictates somewhat of your hype your draftability, whatever it is. Like if you have a certain amount of hype to you or you have your own follower base or whatever it is, it can help your draftability. However, in the special operations community, you need to stay off of social media. So we're talking about primary differences, similarities, whatever. That is a large difference. 
in the special operations community versus the athletics community is that in special operations, you are trying to stay off the radar. You are not trying to self-promote. If you guys are training right now for special operations and you're throwing a bunch of hashtags on your pictures and taking pictures of yourself training in the pool, like we know that maybe you guys don't know any better, but at the end of the day, you don't want to do that. You want to stay out of the spotlight. And Connor talked a little bit earlier about your instructors will be looking at your social media profiles. Like that's true. Your instructors obviously have better things to do than look at your social media profile every day during their spare time. But there will be times during selection where they'll be like, Hey, let's look at the roster and let's check out every dude on this list and let's see what kind of dirt we can get on these guys. And not only that, you look at it, about it from an operational perspective, you don't want to be on social media at all. You want your business to be very private. So with that being said, fellas, like if you haven't done so already, it's okay to have a social media, but make it private. Don't highlight yourself. Don't have something on your profile that says future combat controller, uh, future green beret, future PJ or, or PJ in training or, you know, air force foreign hoping to train for air force special. Leave it out, guys, because at the end of the day, you're just looking for an identity there. You're doing that because you're seeking recognition. And this is not about identity. In athletics, yeah, it's about identity. But in special operations, it's about selflessness and service. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, yeah, Jason Jason really hit the nail on the head there with that one. Is in, um, And you'll see it within your team itself, too. Like, if you post something that, you know, maybe your team doesn't, you know, you're talking about something you did with training or something you know, from the military and you post that on the internet, your team's going to get back on you. You don't want, you don't want the, your own guys working against you. So like right now, right now, guys, I just got out, I just got out a year ago and obviously I'm trying to build a social media presence because it helps me with my professional career being a professional fighter. The more fighters I get, sorry, the more followers I get, the more chance, you know, the UFC is going to get a look at me, the better opportunity I have to make to the UFC and um, get paid more and get sponsorships, endorsements and all that stuff particular for me but before that i i my my profile was on private especially while i was uh active duty um just just instead of the best thing you don't want you don't want to give those instructors ammunition you want to give guys in the career field ammunition to just give you give you shit you just want to be do the right thing show up in the right uniform on the right time with the right gear you know and just be somebody who's willing to work and be for the team and um you know you'll you'll you can you'll get the recognition you know, from the guys that really matter and that's to get your teammates, you, you know, go. everybody else, it doesn't really matter, man. It really doesn't, you know, and that's, and you should, if you're, if you're doing the job to try to look like a cool guy, that's probably, maybe that's not, maybe you should be doing this job. You should be doing the job because, you know, you really want to make a difference and do something. So, and doing what you're doing. So I, spent, I, I, I did nine years without social media guys, no Facebook, no Instagram, no nothing. And it was fine. No issues. You know, the, your, 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 your circle, your support circle, when you guys go down this adventure is going to shrink and the people who really matter, who you really give a shit about are going to be in a really, really small tight circle and everything else is just going to fall by the wayside. Cause gentlemen, you're not going to have time to care. You're not going to have time. Solid input fellas. Great question. Let's go on to Robert. Hey guys. Uh, this question is specifically for uh, Mr. Hazel. There was a post we're talking about social media on your Instagram and it's a video of you doing squats at 500 pounds. And then you go on to talk about, how you transition into an endurance athlete. Could you kind of touch on that transition? And on top of that, is there any point in the pipeline where you wish you had that strength and maybe not have transitioned into so much endurance? Fantastic question. Um, if you do a little bit of basic uh, human physiology research, it's actually 
fairly, I want to say easy, easy is subjective word. It's doable and it's doable faster to train from an endurance athlete into a, a fast switch athlete, into a power trained athlete. To go back the other direction is twice as hard. So um, my previous career as, a, as an athlete, as a javelin thrower, it was to be able to generate as much power and force in, in under a second as possible. From the time my left foot landed on the track to the time the javelin was gone, is under a second and you're generating thousands of pounds of force on your left leg and your back and your knee and your ankle and all generating, uh, you know, a two and a half pound implement at over 95 miles an hour with thousands of pounds of stress and drag behind it. It's, uh, that was a poor choice <laughs> to do before, um, my special operations career, but I had a little less than a year to try to transition. Um, and what I did is I focused on my weaknesses. I didn't actually lift a single weight for an entire year. I did body weight calisthenics because that was my weakness. I ran my nuts off. I hired a running coach um, because I had no idea how to train for a three, four, five, six mile AFSOC. I could lift a shit ton of weights. I could squat 500, 600 pounds. I could bench press 400 pounds. I could run a sub four, five, 40. None of that does you any good in the military pipeline. If you can't run a sub 10, 10 mile and a half, you don't even get your foot in the door. And a 10, 10 mile and a half for me, when I came out of the athletics and I was trying to get into pipeline, that was a kiss of death. So I trained my weaknesses. Uh, it's like what Arnold Schwarzenegger says all the time is you look in the mirror and you train what you don't like. And I didn't need to lift any, any, any of the weights. Uh, I showed up to basic training at 217 pounds. By the time I got out of basic, I was down to 190. It, uh, it, it really... So to answer your question, that's the backstory on it. Uh, it's doable, but you have to do it right, and it's not easy. I would uh, look at what the minimum standards are for your career field that you're trying to attain, and you find out where your deficiencies are, and you train to those deficiencies. There was never a point in my career in the pipeline where I was like, damn, I wish I could still clean you know, 360 pounds. I wish I could still back squat. Not a single time. If anything, it was like I would trade – 300 pounds off my back squat to be able to get through that six mile run 30 seconds faster. Um, so, and there's, when you get through, when you make it through, you know, in a podcast that Jason and Connor and I were just talking about, there's a point in, in at least in the pararescue and the combat control career field, when you get past combat dive, where you get past one man's, the, the pipeline, there's a paradigm shift. And you can then start to train to be an operator and it doesn't have anything to do with what you did in your selections in buds or rasp or anything. You're trained to carry a shit ton of weight on your back and move from cover to cover as fast as possible. That's it. And that's what you train to. You, you start leaning more forward on your skill sets as an operator and the physical aspect of it gets turned down quite a bit and you have more time on your own to build your own body into the machine that you want it to be. Um, you'll have strength coaches and they'll have, you know, certifications and education and degrees on how to do that. And they'll give you the, the parameters, but it's really up to you to decide on what you want to build your, your body into what type of operating machine once you actually get through the pipeline and are on a team. Um, so I hope that answered your question. It was not easy. It was doable. It did not make the pipeline very easy on me specifically on running, running events, um, and endurance events, but for the, for the, the, the strength stuff, uh, that stuff will stay with you for a while. You don't really need to tap into that too often. Good question, Robert. Dean, go ahead. 
from what you guys have been saying thus far, I've been seeing a lot of benefits, I guess, from uh, like training like the athlete and having those coaches to help you out, such as, um, I guess, perfecting your swimming technique and, um, I guess, injury prevention. But a lot of us, including like um, what Jason said, 70% of people that went through the pipeline with him, they weren't um, athletes. So what recommendations would you guys give us to um, start training like athletes? Um, I think there's so much information out there and misinformation that I don't even know where to look, like how, can, how to find like a running coach or swimming coach. So, um, for, so before I went into, I wasn't really a great, a great swimmer. I was just kind of, I was a surfer, so I was comfortable in the water, but I wasn't a good swimmer. So what I did, I just went down to the local YMCA and I got my, I talked to like the swim coach or one of the, I think she was actually a lifeguard, but she did a lot of time swimming. And I, and I asked her for, you know, swimming. Away. She, like you said, you don't have to be elite in anything. You don't have to have, a, you know, and what is, what does that kid have a seven minute, a six minute, a 500 or something like that. You don't have to be in anything like that at all. But um, so that's what I did, and then obviously another good resource you have is uh, it's a SoCom athlete and Jason and you know guys like us. If you really if you really want to ask, um, but you, you, it's it's mostly discipline more than it is um, what you mean. Yeah, you need to follow. You need to be training the right ways, doing the right things, eating the right food, getting enough recovery. You know, training like an athlete, but you need to, it's mostly discipline and sticking to it and not and not you know cheating because you know you're only cheating yourself at the end of the day because at the end of the day you're still you know if you do make it, you're going to get shipped down there you're going to go if you're not performing that's all on you so it's it's having the discipline to stick to your plan and, and you know there is a ton of resources out of it i mean it only would take to, if you really look at it it only take you probably a couple of days of doing really good research to find out the right things to do and then it's actually implement it and doing the right things so it's what you do not really you know I mean, and we have, you know, the resources you have are definitely going to be out there. Yep. Connor nailed it, man. You can Google YouTube. There's a, a million, the, the modern internet age is, is, is saturated with a bunch of ideas on how to train. And, and for the most part, uh, most of them are going to be okay. Um, I'll touch specifically on water because water is, is kryptonite for a lot of people and they just, you know, they, they don't make it through the pool evolutions. So I would say you don't necessarily need to uh, learn how to be a good swimmer, if that makes any sense. Um, once you get past your pass test or your uh, PST or whatever career field you're trying to do, um, you may do a, a little bit of training swims in, in the pool, but you're going to start thinning uh, combat side stroke. And what you, the hands down, it doesn't matter if you're, if you've got fucking massive quad tree trunks like Connor does, and you can kick like a horse being comfortable and efficient in the water is, is all that matters. Um, if you think about how much time and money and energy is spent into building a race car with aerodynamics, you know, and spoilers and, and the, the shape of the front and, the, and everything. Well, Take that and then apply it to water. Water is 830 times more dense than air. So any drag that you have in water is going to be amplified. So learning to have the appropriate body position and not what they call dredging, which is basically having your hips down in water, that is going to make you by far, uh, your life is going to be a whole lot easier in the water. Yeah, you're going to have to learn how to freestyle and side stroke in order to maintain uh, you know, some type of survivability in the pool when you do your training swims. Yeah, but it's very, very little. When you actually get past the initial process and you get your foot in the door, you are going to be doing combat side stroke finning and it's all about fluid dynamics. And so I would lean forward, I would nerd out 
on fluid dynamics. You know, what are the ideal optimal body positions in the water? You want to stay sideways as much as you can. You don't want to be on, you, you can YouTube a ton of stuff on fluid dynamics and body positions of swimmers. Um, so I would really, I would say that you should, when you, the question is training like an athlete is, is it goes back to train the intangibles, right? Get smart on what athletes do. It's not necessarily you going out and, and, and doing the right thing. It's knowing how to apply what you're trying to do and knowing what the, the end result is, if that makes any sense. Um, also, m- more important than any training program is going to be uh, nutrition and recovery. Uh, there's, there's a general rule of thumb out there. So you go anywhere from bodybuilding to, to crossfitting. Training is only 25% of it. Recovery and nutrition is the other 75 So you got to learn how to recover like a professional athlete because you're going to be overtrained from day one, minute one. And you have to learn how to, you know, if you're getting, if you're getting, feel like your shins are getting tight, you need to know how to do self manipulation and myotherapy. Uh, oh gosh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, basically learn how to, to do self care, self care on your muscles, your tendons and your ligaments and, and try to keep the, the maintenance of your body up and running. So that's what I would say is get smart on, the other 75% and don't worry about as much the 25% of the actual training programs. You can find a bunch of training programs out there. They're going to be adequate. It's the other 75% that a lot of people just, they just uh, ignore it and it comes back to bite them in the ass. I definitely say people who are like from there, like they're, they're getting into like 23, 24, 24 age. You know what I mean? When you're, when you're 19, 20, I mean, you, you should definitely implement those things, but you can kind of get away with it. But when you start, you hit an age, when you start getting older, you're going to realize you, that that should be the priority. So you shouldn't be eating bad food. I feel like nutrition is nutrition and sleep is is something that's overlooked for everybody. I mean, athletes are really starting to take it serious now. But like, if you're not an athlete, people don't even really realize it and how, how much that stuff is is important. So I, I say, like Mike was saying, that's the biggest most important is recovering. When you guys need to recover, that doesn't mean drinking beers or or you know eating bad food all weekend. You know what I mean? That means just doing, making the right decisions because that little thing that is going to help you a ton. If you're really trying to make gains to, to accomplish your goal. Good question, Dean. All right, let's go on to Ariel. All right. So, uh, lately I've been focusing for the past few months on training for SFAS. Um, but Ariel, how long you been in the SOCOM athlete program? You're new, right? Yeah, actually I've just been in for a day. Welcome to the program, man. Glad to have you here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad to be here. You're trying um, to become a green beret. Yeah, but I've also been um, taking a look at CCT since I started reading Alone at Dawn, um, the story of John Chapman. Um, And from what I can tell, uh, the CCTs are attached to SEAL teams and other soft groups. Um, So I'd like to ask Connor uh, how you as an individual connected with the guys that have been grinding and training together for years. Um, I know you guys talked about team sports and individual sports. But um, how did you got my uh, a loaded Don copy right here? So, um, so basically, like we were talking about this uh, kind of earlier, is is the fact of the matter when you're doing anything or being an operator, you have to prove yourself every single time you get attached to a team or every single time you do anything. So you can do that in the pipeline. Anytime you get to a team, you have to realize it's not like we were talking about earlier about egos, right? What's an ego? It's it's not, and that's the biggest thing. It's what people look for. Are you willing to just whatever that team asks you to do is to shut up and just do it and, you know, put, put yourself before the rest of the team. And as soon as you prove that to anybody, generally people are going to start liking you. All right. And, and that's the biggest thing. Um, yeah, you're right. You get on a team, like they're not going to trust, especially being an air force guy, right? 
oh, look at this, you know, it, it, it's just easy to throw that, throw that thing. Oh, no, we've got an Air Force guy hooked up to this SF team. They're obviously going to be like, start giving you shit. But um, obviously our career fields have a, the SF and uh, SF and CCTs, you know, they, they have a lot of, they work together a lot. So they kind of knew who we are. But um, yeah, no, that was the biggest thing. It's just proving myself. And uh, after I did my first mission with them, I, I, went, I went out and I, and, and they, they, they started requesting me on by name because they, they, they appreciated, you know, cause I was going to do what, you know, whatever they wanted, you know I mean? I'm, I'm attaching their team there. They have already have a team dynamic. They got everything figured out. They're set the pecking order and how everything works as I have to be able to just prove to them that I, I'm willing to do whatever they ask. And that's the biggest thing. And so then you got to build that trust by being a good build that trust from the ground from, yeah, from the bottom up. Ariel, um, I'll ask you a couple, well, I'll ask you one question and then I'll circle back to the whole augmenting other soft things. What attracted you about SF? And if, if I can, why not Ranger? Yeah, definitely. So, um, I think more than anything, I look at SF and I see versatility, um, in the same way I, I see that in CCT. Um, and, you know, you have guys in the soft groups naturally that are versatile in a lot of different things. But, um, you know, with SF, you have language school, um, unconventional warfare. Um, you know, you have a mission set that is, um, you know, very diverse. And so I think that that was what attracted me. Um, and with Rangers, I think that, you know, I mean, I've thought about that too. But at the end of the day, I, I want to embed with, you know, uh, uh, foreigners and, um, you know, be a force builder essentially. It's a fantastic answer, man. And you, that was the answer I was looking for. Um, you know, the, the incorrect answer is cause I want to be a special operator and that, if that's your answer and that's your driving force, that's not good enough. So I would, I would urge everybody here to be a professional if, of, and the knowledge of whatever career you're trying to go into. And, uh, I'll caveat that with the book that you're reading alone at dawn, Fantastic book, obviously, um, but the career field has changed a lot since that has happened. The augmentees to other special operations units that you are referencing are very rare, and not a whole lot of people get to do them. Some people are very blessed to do it, like Connor got a chance to do it, but I would say the vast majority of combat controllers, over 75% will never see that mission. Um, there's also something, if you're looking at the pararescue uh combat control pipeline, there's something you guys need to get real smart on. It's the 2030 ST vision. And what that basically means is that old days, the alone at dawn days where, you know, go out and augment a SEAL team or an ODA team or something like that. Yeah. It may happen very, very, very rarely, but the new mission of special tactics and special warfare is unilateral strike reconnaissance recovery. So the, the idea is that you're not going to be doing that anymore. These, the, the old commando combat controller mission where you're augmenting an ODA team uh, or a SEAL platoon, um, that's being taken away from our career field and it's being handed out to those teams to back their old organic uh, uh, assets. SEALs already have their own JTACs. ODA guys are being taught the JTAC mission. It's, it's, not, it's not something that combat controllers own as a, as a right. It's something that we became really good at. It's just an extra skill that you pick up. So if you think that you're going to be a combat controller with the guys and the understanding that you're going to augment another soft unit and be the liaison, uh, it may be a, a not so accurate aspiration happened to me. Uh, I was, 
when I went up to my, I signed up for a guard unit at the 125th Special Tactics Squadron. When I got to my unit to enlist, we had 25 operators on team, 25 green current uh, JTACs, which meant that at any given time, any one of those guys could augment a active duty squadron or augment an ODA team as a, as a JTAC commando mission. By the time I got through the pipeline and on team, we had 40 operators on team and four JTACs. So you do the numbers. It's, it's a massive, massive reduction in what you're reading in that book. Um, does it still exist? Absolutely. And is it a very rewarding mission? Absolutely. Do a lot of people get a shot at it? No, not at all. So keep that in the back of your head. But I'm, I'm glad that you answered the question for, uh, for SF the way you did because your, your head's in the right spot. You got accepted recently, right? Ariel? Yeah, um, just yesterday. Welcome to the team. You having a good time? Absolutely. More than anything, it can be really hard to talk to, you know, um, other people about soft and, and my dreams, especially at college, um, where everyone is going to, you know, do something else. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's just a blessing to be surrounded by people that are driven you know, to get after it every day. Great to have you here, man. All right. Next question. Will, go ahead, man. So uh, I played baseball and hockey in high school and especially in baseball, you know, there's the theme of kind of you know, failure. Um, you guys talked about adversity a little bit earlier, but like in baseball, you know, like the best hitters even in major leagues hit baseball three to 10 times, you get a hit, right? So you're failing seven times. How did um, lessons in sports, like deal, like how to deal with failure help you in the pipeline? Yeah, great question. I think that failure is everything. And, and I know a lot of people have said this, but it's all about how you react to the failure. It's not about the individual failure that's important. And you've obviously heard the, the phrase, I don't lose, I either win or I learn type thing. So uh, failure is a great thing. Um, obviously, it doesn't completely knock you or derail you off your path. And it's a small failure. Failure can be a great thing. And the beautiful thing about sports is, and uh, Connor and Mike and I talked about this earlier, is a difference between athletics is in baseball and basketball, for example, you have five, six games in, in a week, sometimes four games in a week, right? In football, you have one game a week. When it comes to being a special operator, you train and train and train, and then you deploy. And you don't know when you're going to get a mission. You may get one mission a day, you may get three missions a day, or you may get one mission or no missions the entire time that you are deployed. Failure all depends on how you're able to pick yourself up and move forward. And in special operations, if you fail, sometimes that can mean your life versus in sports. If you fail, you can pick yourself back up. You go on to the next game, you get debriefed to practice and you fix it, right? But in special operations, perfection can sometimes be key, whether or not it's you making sure that you know the jump brief and that you are clear with your emergency procedures before you do a halo jump or whether or not it's you know how to operate with your team before you do some type of close quarter combat situation. You have to be able to operate as a team and you don't have as much room for error as you do in sports. So I think that's one of the primary differences uh, to answer your question is in sports, you have room for failure in special operations. No, you don't necessarily have room at all. I'll jump in here. Uh, one thing that I learned the most uh, regarding failure in athletics, and I've had a lot, um, is the effect of performance anxiety. So whenever you're under stress or you're worried about something, you have this nasty little hormone that gets released in your body called cortisol, and it is a performance killer. 
And uh, that's one thing that you're going to see in the pipelines in the uh, these special operations training environments is you're going to be under stress 24 hours a day. You're going to be underslept, underfed, overworked, um, and you're going to be handed impossible tasks because that's the way they're designed. You're the better you become, uh, the better you become at adapting to those stress uh, modalities, and it's different for everybody. The better you're going to perform. The Biggest competitions in my athletic career, world championships, Olympic games, Pan American games, competitions where I was trained perfectly. I had tapered. My training periodization was was on point. I had physiologists, nutritionists, psychologists, multiple coaches, massage therapists, you name it. I have everything that I need, but I let my head get in the way because I thought that the, the, the end result of my performance was going to dictate how I lived my life. So if I don't medal at the Olympic Games or if I don't win, um, you know, a, a major or get into a final at a world championships, then everyone's going to think I'm a failure and my sponsors are going to run for the hills. I let that be my internal uh, talk before these competitions. And even though my body was peaked and primed for, for performance, that stress molecule of cortisol that was pumping through my veins, and you can actually test this in blood work. Um, will absolutely destroy your ability to perform. Um, your actual nervous system, your regulatory nerve, nervous system on how fast you can turn on and off muscles can actually be measured under cortisol versus no stress whatsoever. And it's almost a 75% reduction. So that's what I learned in athletics moving into the pipeline is knowing when it's appropriate to have stress and be okay with stress and then know when it's when you're feeling stress and understand that it's not needed. Um, if you're getting ready to jump out of a plane in the middle of the night and you're decked out in wall locker gear and O2 and weapon and a rucksack and the visibility is shitty and there's turbulence and you, there's a fear of dying, stress is validated. You're okay to have stress. <laughs> you, you hope you can rely back on your, on your training at that point in time. But if you're just laying in bed at night and you're worried about something that's going to possibly may not even happen the next day, like a beating or a surf torture or anything like that, that's completely unfounded. You need to, you need to dial back into what's happening in the present moment. You're probably laying in bed in a comfortable ass bed. Maybe you're tired, maybe you're beat up from the day before, but you're in a safe environment and there's no need to forecast that, that stress that may or may not even happen. I can't tell you how many times that I did that. Connor and I did that when we'd be in the pipeline and you know what's coming the next day and you lay in bed thinking about it all night daydreaming about what may or may not happen. And then when you actually get to that evolution, it doesn't unfold at all the way you thought it was going to unfold in your head. Hey, hey Mike, I'll got caveat. I think you might remember this in selection. The, one of the days we lost the most guys in our entire selection, the cadre came on the bus. All right. And he, and he, and he walked on the bus. We're sitting on there. And before we're going to go over to the pool, he goes to the, he goes to the guys. Like, hey, listen guys, this is going to be the hardest day in the pool yet. So if this isn't for you, you guys should stand up, get up, and you should probably walk off the bus. Literally half the Dude, bus. I remember that. Staff Sergeant Thomason, the seer dude, he's my roommate at CCS. Yeah. Or yes. CC, uh, yeah, dude. HC. Yeah. So he, he gets on the bus, just like Connor said, and he was like, hey, you know, we got in a pool yesterday, and it sucked. You know, we got, we got beat up. But I'm letting you guys know that today is the day, and they're going to ramp it up. They're going to shark us. They're going to snake us. They're going to take away our air. And if you don't want to, if you don't want to endure that beating, you should probably just go now. Literally half the people got up and walked off the bus. We lost like 15 people. And then after they had all walked off, Sergeant Thomason got back there. He kind of looked around and goes, 
I fucking can't believe that worked. We're not going to pool today. I was about to say, was it that bad or what? No. no. We, I, don't even, I don't even know what we did that day, but it was, everybody was just like, <laughs> yeah. I can't believe that. It wasn't a bad session at all. I think we went in the pool, but it was just a normal pool session. It wasn't too bad. It was just our, an average pool. It, that, like they, that wasn't the event, but it was just, it got everybody's head. But, you know, that, it was good because, you know, it cut the fat a little bit. You know what I mean? But it goes to show you that that was anxiety that wasn't real. All those people, no idea. But, you know, so the, it, it, you can quit. You can make life decisions on things that actually will, probably won't even really happen. So it's really just focused on, on what you're doing at that moment is the most important thing. Solid question, Will. All right, Justin, go ahead, man. Hey, guys, thanks for this opportunity. This is a lot of really helpful stuff. Uh, this question is more for Connor and Mike. Uh, I'm a CCT hopeful, and I'm wondering – I do have uh, some competitive team sports background. I'm wondering what kind of uh, traits are you looking for in a teammate that you ex- expect especially out of CCTs? Connor, you want to jump in there? So, um, what, so the question is what sort of traits do you expect in like a teammate and a teammate aspect are you asking? Yeah. Yep. I mean, so I think all these, all these traits are going to pretty be universal all, all the way through soft. And, 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 and at the end of the day, it's, it's picking up the slack and being able to, you know, do carry the weight for the team. So I don't care. I mean, that goes for every, 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 everything. So we'll say we're carrying a log. Being, being a guy that's going to, you know, put out for the rest of the team or whatever, whatever it is, if everybody on that log is, is carrying their, their portion of the weight. And that's the point of saying that's basically, I mean, that, that log is a big metaphor for all soft. And, and, that's, and that could be, you know, picking up gear to bring on a mission. If he could, you know, one guy maybe is, 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 is or is missing planning and doing, the, doing some, some sort of uh, uh, intel dump or you know getting information it, it's just carrying everybody's doing their their portion and carrying the weight and what they're good at all right so it doesn't really matter that's why we have teams because not everybody's going to be good at everything but some people are going to be good at certain things so that's the point of having a team that's what a combat control team is i, I i'll be honest i wouldn't maybe it wasn't good at um at air traffic control but i'm really good at you know some other aspect of of, of being a combat controller that's in that so they put me in that position and, it, and it's, it's accepting what you're good at and helping out the team and not not putting yourself in front of everybody else and just doing your job is the biggest thing i would say and that goes for every soft job yeah i'll uh i'll say this is actually a really easy answer um and it's not something that you have to look far for so is it uh did justin is that who answering the question yes sir yeah justin so i would say uh who are your best friends right now and look at the attributes that they possess and why are you friends with them? Like, what do they do on a day-to-day basis and they show up in your life, which you makes you decide, I want to put these guys in my inner circle. Their opinion matter to me. Like, how I show up on my day-to-day life will affect these guys and I want to do what's best uh, because I have these guys in mind. So, I would say, you know, the question is, you know, what, what makes, what, you know, what attributes are you looking for? You look for the attributes that you want in a best friend because that's exactly who you're going to want next to you when you're downrange. You want someone who has your best interests in mind, not theirs. They, they put an emphasis on we over me, like we talked about earlier, and you can count on them. Uh, there are, you will see people, and I saw people, and Connor saw people, Jason saw people who were physically not talented, and they, maybe they weren't that academically smart, and they, they, were, they struggled in a lot of avenues in the pipeline, but they were fucking fantastic teammates, and they were great friends, and they would drop whatever they were doing 
to help you get through whatever sticking spots you have. And that is contagious. It spreads like wildfire. And the rest of the team will rally around those dudes and pull them through. And there's no greater feeling. Dude, I got goosebumps on it right now. I remember vividly pulling guys through the pipeline who physically were just struggling, but they were, dude, they were solid stand-up teammates. And they would go out of their way to help you. They would stay late. They would come in early. They would help prep gear. They would do whatever they could to help get the team through the evolution. And those are the guys that you want around you. And that's the guy that you want to be when you show up to team. If you show up the opposite of that thinking, hey, I just want to get through and I'm going to put my own survivability in front of everybody else's, you will stick out like dog's balls. The instructors will pick up on it. Your team will pick up on it. Nobody will go to bat for you. And the next thing you know, you're going to be done. Hey, Justin, I just want to say something as a PJ, you know, just watching combat controllers from the outside, like combat controllers are force multipliers. So they need to be dudes who can bring something special to the battlefield and really add multiple weaponry to the battlefield and add um, uh, extreme dynamics to the battlefield. So you have to be an intense communicator. You have to be that alpha male. You have to be somebody who's going to operate the best whenever they're stressed out, um, be able to communicate with other people, be able to get people on board with you, um, be able to communicate clear with them. So in my opinion, what, what stood out for, for me um, as far as combat controllers versus everyone else is combat controllers were guys who were willing to take the torch and run in front of other people and say, you know what, like, I'll be the first guy to go in and do this, like send me, I'm going to be the guy to do this in the, the mission statement, the, the motto of a combat controller, excuse me, motto of a combat controller is first there. So if you're about that life, if you're about being the first person there, it's right there. Two words, first there, Justin. I'll throw one more, one more little caveat into there. So um, there, it, there's one thing that I saw in the pipeline and I saw it all the way from the senior leadership, from the lieutenant, the captain and the major position all the way down to the team sergeant position is um, you have to know when you're, when, when you're wrong and you have to know when you don't know the answer and you have to know when you're not good enough and you have to verbalize it and let people know. If you try to throw other people under the bus to cover up for your inadequacies, that is a fast track to being ostracized off a team. Teams are peer-driven organizations. And if, if in the pipeline, you're going to get tasked with shit that you can't do. It's built in because they want to see how you handle the adversity. They want to see how you handle something. They're going to ask you a question that there's no possible way you know an answer to. And instead of making something up or blaming somebody else, being able to be a man, step into like what Jocko would say, which would be like extreme ownership and be like, you know what, Sergeant, I don't have the answer for that. I need remedial training or I need to go study some more, you know, rather than just being like, oh, well, you know, I would know the answer, but, you know, we were over here helping this guy get through this rock and he couldn't pack and, you know, and believe it, 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 people will put their own self-preservation in front of their own self-dignity of being able to own when you're not right, when you're fucked up, when you need help, when you don't have the answer and not being man enough to raise your hand and be like, I don't know. I don't have an answer and I'm willing to pay the price. I'll find out. You got to be able to do that. And you got to be able to know your role and you got to be able to ask for help. Like you can't do everything on your own. And that's a, a common mistake that comes with that alpha type of personality is I'm going to try to take this all myself. I'm going to take this all burden myself. I'm going to do it all myself. Well, that's not the way it works. Every single person on that team has their own percentages of responsibilities. And you got to be able to trust them and know 
that they're going to take care of their part, right? And that attributes to football, for example. When I played football, it was preached to us to not try to do somebody else's job, especially on defense. Like, this is your zone. This is your zone of coverage. Don't try to go and cover somebody else's zone. Do your job, and we as a team will get this done, right? And so that's really what it comes down to is relying on your teammates and allowing them to do their job and you to do your job. Great question, Justin. Thank you. All right, next question. Let's go to Diego. Awesome. Hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Diego, uh, talking from San Antonio and uh, current Air Guardsman in Texas. Uh, so I had a two-part question. Uh, this first one is kind of mainly geared uh, to Connor, but uh, definitely would appreciate any and all input. Uh, this is kind of falls in the mental prep thing. Uh, since you're a fighter and you said you've been fighting your whole life, it kind of sounds like uh, maybe you've never had problems with uh, kind of the, the animal instinct of fight, flight, or freeze. I, in my past, have had kind of a, the freeze tendency, so to speak. Uh, I've come a long way from then, uh, but still kind of struggle with it from time to time. And uh, sometimes I, I, I kind of wonder, you know, uh, I would hope that when it when the time came, if ever I found myself in combat or something, that I would not freeze. Uh, so I guess I'm just kind of wondering, uh, can it be trained? Can it be taught? Uh, or can that tendency be, or that habit, I, I suppose, be broken? Um, so, I mean, there's no definitely, like, absolute answer to that. Um, because there's no way to find out unless you're actually in there doing, you know, doing it. But I will say this, I, and just because I'm a fighter doesn't mean I don't have other things that I've fr frozen in, you know what I mean? And other experiences, like for me, uh, originally uh, public speaking has always been something I always, I did, I hated, I just hated getting in front of a crowd of people and talking to them. And I still, and I still struggle. So it's something I don't like today, but it's something I, as a combat controller and as being an operator, it's something you have to overcome. So, um, and things that helped me get over that is, is in, in the job, being a, being a combat controller, we had to do, you know, jump. I don't like heights. Had to jump out of planes all the time. Had to fast rope out of helicopters. Had to go be up on high things, climb different things. But, you know, you can't freeze. You just kind of keep moving forward. And, I, and they kind of train just, just accomplishing all those small little goals. You eventually, um, it becomes normal to you and you be able to accomplish things outside of that. So first it's like, um, all these things that I was scared of doing, you know what I mean? Getting a jump out of plane, jumping out, um, fast roping, all like scared anything to do with heights or public speeding, getting in front of somebody and talking to them. Now, um, it helps me with being a fighter because now I'm used to all the, all that stress. I know how to deal with it. And that's really comes down to dealing with stress. That fight or flight is dealing with stress. And the biggest thing is not letting those instincts take over all the time. It's, it's taking a step back. You know, if I, if you're, if you're in a firefight, or you're, you know, in your combat situation, you can't just let your instincts take over. You need to take, take a step back and, you know, do the job right and, 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 and attack it that way. So it's, it's, you, there's no way, that, but I'm not going to say that, like, you know, it, being in combat is, there's no way to simulate being in actually being in combat besides doing it. You know what I mean? So, um, but I can say, yeah, I think this is something you can break through uh, repetitions of just putting yourself in uncomfortable situations and then just dealing with it. It's, the, it's eventually you are going to overcome those, come those the problem, and the, and the, you know, but it's definitely something you have to work on. And Mike, do you have anything to add on to that? Yeah, I'll throw some two cents in there. So um, you, you mentioned fight, flight, or freeze. Um, freezing is not a bad thing. Freezing sometimes allows you to get that tactical pause where you can get a little bit of situational awareness, where you can back out, 
zoom out, get that 30,000 foot view, analyze what's going on, and then make an educated decision. If you have poor training or if you have bad habits, if you go straight into fight, you could potentially make a really, really bad decision that you can't recover from. You can engage the wrong target. You can hurt one of your own men. Um, training and training properly and training with uh, well thought out training plans, which you will have, um, can help flatten that curve so that you can get into a point when you have that fight, flight, or freeze moment, when you have an ability to have that freeze, look at the tactical situation, look at the scenario, make an educated decision, and then go to fight. And believe it or not, that'll happen a whole lot faster than you think it will. And it's a product of your training. So, um, and you'll, you'll get plenty of opportunity when you guys, if, and when you get through the pipeline, you get to your, you get to your teams and you do workups, you'll, you'll, you'll get plenty of chances to, to, to practice that. Will it be the same as combat? Absolutely not. But will you get a chance to simulate it? Yeah. And that's as about as good as you're going to get uh, stateside. So two things that I would say with uh, doing stress, this is something you guys can do shit tonight, tomorrow. Um, there is a lot of research and a lot of science out there about what breath work does for stress in the cortisol hormone. Um, Wim Hof's a big dude right now who's everybody's getting on the bandwagon. You know, I've heard it. I've heard about breath work for a long time, but it was always pitched to me in a really hippy dippy yoga type mentality. And I just, I wouldn't fucking into it. I was just like, yeah, that's not me. But when I really dug into the science about what controlling your breathing can actually do to your stress levels, to your heart rate, to your cortisol levels, uh, to the pH in your blood, which affects how well that blood circulates through your body and gets into your tissues. It's something you guys need to look into. The, the quicker you can control your breathing, the quicker you can get a hold of that stress. Um, the second thing I would say is, um, you know, a good way to simulate stress every morning and every night is get into it. <laughs> <laughs> that's stress dude especially you guys live up in the northeast i mean it's already fucking 10 to, sorry about my language i get fired up every now and then it's already like 10 degrees outside in the middle of the winter the last thing you want to do is get out of a warm bed and go jump in a cold shower there's stress you know you sit there you butt naked you're like i don't have to do this nobody's looking at me i don't nobody's going to judge me if i it's you versus you it's your ability to step into an uncomfortable position voluntarily and execute it and it, it takes practice and what that's going to do, not only is it going to help you, uh, you know, get used to cold water first thing in the morning, which you're going to need to do. Uh, it, it's, it, there's a, there's a huge physiological adaptation that comes with it. Like it, bu it bumps a bunch of hormones, goes through the roof. Um, and it also bleeds over into your daily life. It's like my ability to step into an uncomfortable position without going into fight, flight or freeze. I wake up, I get out of bed, I go to the shower, take my clothes off. I stand there and I flip it to cold and I sit there for three minutes and I get out and I go about my day. It's going to make you better at doing that in your daily life. You got a conversation with an ex or a spouse or a boss that you think it's an awkward conversation. I don't want to have it. You know, this is uncomfortable. If you're used to getting uncomfortable all the time and dealing with it, it's going to bleed over into your daily life. So I highly recommend you, you guys not only do that on a day-to-day -day basis, voluntarily put yourself in an uncomfortable position, uh, but also nerd out on a little bit of the science behind why. So look into some of the breathwork stuff. Uh, there's box breathing, which is huge. I utilize that a lot when I was in, in the pipeline, uh, you know, getting the shit kicked out of you and you're laying on the ground and you got stuff flying all over you and just doing some box breathing. Box breathing is four seconds in, hold, four seconds out, hold, four seconds in, hold. You focus on your breath 
and you focus on your breathing instead of what's going on around you. And you'd be amazed at, at what it does for your stress levels and your ability to focus and your ability to kind of take yourself out of the situation and move to that 30,000 foot view where you can actually get a true snapshot of what is actually happening. Sweet. Awesome. Yeah, it's really about a, a losing that sense of entitlement, uh, losing that sense of self-preservation, losing that sense of comfort and being willing to take on uncomfort. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter how many cold showers you take. Each cold shower is going to suck. Um, and I'm sure Connor can attest to this. It doesn't matter how many times you get punched in the face. It's never going to prepare you for the next punch. It's always going to get, it's always going to suck to get punched in the face, right? But how well do you deal with that suck and how open are you to that suck? I'm going to caveat on that a little bit and say that, do you approach this with humor? Are you the kind of person that's going to be like, all right, we're going to go do log PT. All right, we're going to go hit the surf. Let's do this. I've been waiting for this for a long time. Let's go. I'm ready for this. This is what I've been training for. Or are you the kind of person that's going to be like, ah, oh, like, ah, oh, I hope I don't quit, right? Are you going to focus on what you don't want to do or are you going to focus on what you're going to do? That's really what makes uh, a difference between those that are successful and those that aren't. Great question, Sweet. Diego. I did, I did have a, a quick last one. I know we got uh, yeah, other go folks in the queue. I'll just ask it really quick. Uh, there's a, a phrase that you said, Jason, a, a bunch that, you know, that's really uh, got me thinking a whole lot. We said uh, the difference between what you're meant to do versus uh, what you want to do. And uh, just kind of hearing all your guys' stories. Uh, I, I heard one previous uh, podcast with Connor and how, uh, you know, you did uh, uh, the CCT thing for a while. And then uh, just, I guess, live timelines or, or just kind of goals and windows closing. Uh, you know, you want to pursue the, the, fight, the fighting path. Uh, and then maybe uh, on the flip side with Mike, uh, you know, you're athlete before and then later in life decided to become a controller. Um, how was there a tipping point for you or was it kind of like, oh, man, I got these two paths that I want equal. I just got to make a decision. Otherwise, my door is going to close. So for me, it was um, like after you said after I got, you know, did my, my deployment to Afghanistan, I like kind of looked at it. I had him. I served my six years. And I mean, if I reenlisted, that brings me a halfway you know, and that's, you know, halfway through a, a career of 20 years. So that would have brought me to 10 years and then I probably would have stuck in. So that's, that's the reason why I chose, you know, I did the things I wanted to do within my job as a combat controller. Not that and I loved them. I had a good time, but um, I, I also had this, always had that dream of being a professional athlete and being a professional I'm a UFC fighter. So um, I just took that because I, I know I, that, that window was going to close eventually, you know, I, as 20, you know, as 27 getting out. I still had a good opportunity to get some, some youth in me to, you know, be able to like go, go for it, go at it. And that's why I made that decision to do that. Hey, was the, was the question the tipping point uh, for the decision to get out? Is that what the question was? Uh, or just, uh, I guess, a tipping point to make the decision to go down a path that you were kind of uh, right. at a fork in the road. Was there a tipping point or was it just, hey, I just have to make a decision? I could kind of talk to that. Um, when I got, when I, when I was, before, when I joined, I kind of had to make a decision. I, I mean, I, I wasn't going to college. You know, I was just working. I was working construction jobs. I was, you know, I, I wanted something more out of life. And I, there, yeah, there is a the point where you have to make a decision and run with it and go for it. And, you know, going for special operations, you are taking a risk of not, you know, exactly getting that job you wanted and getting stuck into a job for a couple of years that you don't like if you don't make it. And um, so that, I mean, that's it. So, but you have to make a decision to go for it. And, I, and striving for something great is going to be, better than, you know, regretting never trying at all. So Absolutely. I, I say you definitely, you, whatever you're going to do, you strive for what you want to do, what you believe, but you, but you need to do everything you can in your heart that you know that you did everything you can to get that job. 
and then you go for it. And if you don't get it, at least you know you tried everything you did and you just didn't work out for you. And I'm sure you'll find something else. It'll be okay. Perfect. Yeah, so I'll, I'll use two tipping points. I'll use the tipping point to get in and why I got in and then why I got out. So that, that'll be a, a good segue. Uh, my tipping point, like I said, uh, I would have probably, I think maybe I didn't talk about it with you guys. You're talking about it on the podcast. Um, I didn't anticipate my athletic career doing what it did. I don't think anybody did. Um, nobody grows up playing football and baseball in, in Texas and then thinks that you're going to be an Olympian in track and field. You know, if, if anything, I was hoping I could maybe get drafted in baseball and try to make a career out of it. Um, so my athletic career and the successes that I had kicked my military service down the road. Uh, if I hadn't have made the Olympic team in 2008, I was 29 in 2008 when I made the Olymp my first Olympic team. Um, if I hadn't have made the Olympic team, I was coming out immediately and I was headed to butts. Uh, when I made the Olympic team, obviously that kicks everything right. Four more years for another four year Olympic quadrennium is what they call it. Um, and so what that essentially did is that put me up against a timeline. Uh, 30 and under is what they wanted uh, for buds for officers. So I was already up against a waiver, which I got. Um, but when I retired in 2012, I knew that that was where I was headed. I was headed to the military. Um, I thought I was going to buds uh, to be an officer. I got a billet and then I lost the billet due to sequestration in 2012 when Obama was reelected. And I fell back on combat control as a backup plan. And I say as a backup plan is because I never researched it in the first place. I live in San Diego. My neighbors were SEALs. I'd seen the SEALs training at the Olympic Training Center. I'd been out to the Naval Special Warfare Complex. I'd done the obstacle course. Like this, that's, that's where I thought I was going. Had I had done some research and been a little bit more open-minded about what other career fields were out there, I may have not made that decision. Um, but that was my tipping point to get in. I was up against a time, uh, time crunch. I had to get in because of my age. And it was my, at that, at that point in time, it was my life's mission. I fully expected and would have been okay with laying my life down on the line for my brothers in arms. I, I, I'd even had this vision in my head that said, dude, I've been on the Olympic team. I've been hanging out on, you know, in 23 different countries. I've seen the world. I've been hanging out with like playmates and stuff, stuff that like normal dudes don't get a chance to do. Like, how is my life going to, how am I ever going to top this? And for me, it was, well, if I could go down in a blaze of glory, serving my country and my brothers, then that's how I want to do it. And that's what I, that was my tipping point. And it was a, it was an unbelievable itch to serve and the decision to kick it down the road four years uh, was was probably not the best decision in my, in my military career, not only for my age, but my, the wear and tear on my body, but it was a decision that I made at the time uh, financially for contracts for track and field. My decision to get out was almost the exact opposite of that. Um, when I showed up to my unit, I, uh, a lot like, uh, I forget who was the other guy uh, who's uh, assigned to an Air National Guard unit, I was the first non-prior service dude to show up to my unit. Everybody else that came to the guard came from an active duty squadron or cross-trained from a different MOS. So I was the first guy to show up off the street. And I was also the lowest ranking guy to show up off the street. So once I made it through the pipeline and I got to my unit, there was nobody assigned to me to mentor my training. It was basically get in line with a bunch of former tier one operators and a bunch of seasoned GWAT veterans who'd been deployed for the last 10 or 12 years who just happened to be assigned to a guard unit. So you talk about not fitting in or feeling inadequate. Like when I showed up to my team, I was like, oh shit, 
These, these are some experienced dudes. And my learning curve was exponentially fast. And the wear and tear on my body, um, you know, I was shit, 36 when I got to my unit. Um, you know, the shelf life on operators is, is, is you get to your mid thirties or your late thirties or into your forties, like you've done well as an operator. And, um, right when I showed up to my unit in April of 2016, the 2030 mission dropped and they threw that in the lap. The DO and the CEO at my unit both came from the two, four, which is a tier one organization for special tactics. And they said, you guys are going to be the first ones to implement it. Um, that decision right there took away that commando mission that we were talking earlier about. I, I had my dream of deploying as a JTAC assigned to an ODA, a SEAL platoon or a MARSOC unit was taken away from me. And I was told that I was going to be a, a door kicker and a shooter for the rest of my career, which is okay. I mean, that's, you know, that's what some people sign up for. It's not what I wanted to do. It's not what I was told I was. I wanted to be a JTAC. I wanted to drop bombs and I wanted to kill a lot of people at one time. That's what I wanted. Um, that was taken away from me. So, uh, I, I kind of no longer bought into the vision of the program. Um, I, from the time I showed up at my unit in, in April of 2016 to the time I left in January, 2019, I was the only guy to ever leave the unit. I never saw anybody leave. After I left this last calendar year, I think they've had nine guys leave. So there's uh, a lot of people are not, after they've reached a certain stage in their career, they're not interested in changing what their job title is. So a lot of people are getting out. I wasn't into it. So I didn't support the mission and what they were asking me to do. Uh, additionally, uh, my body was completely wrecked. I needed shoulder surgery, knee surgery, ankle surgery, now back surgery. Um, and I had a four-year-old girl that needed a dad. And so for me to stay at the unit, to keep just getting, you know, the Gucci gear and take the fun TDY shooting trips and stuff like that would have been a selfish move. And it was time for me to move on and hand the stick to uh, younger, much more motivated and capable guys. And that was my tipping point and why I decided to get out. All right. Great question, Diego. Okay. Let's move on to Joseph. Hey, good evening instructors. I just want to preface this with saying, thank you. You know, your stories are not, what I'm getting from this is like, not your Instagram motivational rah, rah. You guys are giving very powerful testimonies to your own personal lives. So thank you for, uh, for being vulnerable with us like this. Uh, I want to ask about uh, the dichotomy between being an athlete and having injuries and being in the pipeline and being an operator and working with injuries because you guys did very intense stuff like Connor fights professionally, Jason threw his body into other guys. And then I saw Mike's on my Instagram post where he, he tosses this, he just hucks this javelin and he tweaks his ankle. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, like I, I, I cannot imagine what that must be like as an operator or in the pipeline. Can you guys give some insight as to, working with injuries as both an athlete at a very high level and as an operator. Yeah. I mean, me and Mike are probably <laughs> good guys to talk to about this. So, um, I got, I got, I tore my meniscus PCL and, um, MCL when I was going through the pipeline. And when you're going through the pipeline, I mean, there's really like, I got, I had to rehab it back and then, you know, get back without doing, I tried, I didn't want to get surgery because once you get surgery, and you're, you're really looking at a long, a long time to recover. And, and, they, and, you know, in my window, you, you want to get out of the pipeline as fast as possible. So the best thing I could do is rehab it and then deal with that injury. Thank God I got my injury near the end of my, um, near the end of my pipeline. I only had a couple more schools to go for. 
and it was usually ORT, which is like um, more advanced schools. You're doing tactics, and you're not really doing as much. You're learning vehicles, tactics, shooting, and you're you're not doing as much. You know, rucking and, and getting smoked as a as a as a stu- as a you know a beginner student. Um, but yeah, dealing with those things is something that's you know is it, it, it sucks. And then now I ha- I had to actually finally get surgery on my knee, and now I'm dealing with it as an athlete. And the biggest thing I would say is taking care of your body is to the best of the best to to the best of my ability, and that's doing the little things like waking up and I like like Mike says like I'm like literally taking ice baths every week, uh, getting shower, uh, taking cold showers, stretching, doing yoga, doing things that like you know are kind of boring and not like the fun things I want to do, but they're very very important to uh, you know dealing with those injuries and keeping everything you know going because if I stop. I mean, it just catches up to me really fast. So, yeah, dealing with injuries is something. And, and that's the thing that sucks about this, these jobs is, like, you can, you know, crush it, be a stud athlete, be a stud on everything, then you get an injury, and it could ruin your entire pipeline. But it's something, you know, there's to think about because you're not guaranteed, even if you are a stud. Um, but it's, it's, it's something that definitely a realistic thing. Mike was dealing with injuries all the way through the pipeline as well. So, And I was on team with him. So, Mike, you can talk about that too. Yeah, man. Uh, injuries, you have to learn to deal with them. Sometimes you have to learn to just shut your mouth and act like they don't exist. Um, yeah. So pipelines are designed to test the body in order to test the mind. So they're going to try to break the body to see if we can break the mind. Those people who are able to break the body but not break the mind, make it through. Um, there's plenty of stories of guys going through hell weeks and pipelines with stress fractures and broken broken backs and shit like that. And you just have to get through with it. Um, and that bleeds over into an operational setting like you wouldn't believe. Just because you twist your ankle or you got bulging discs in your back doesn't mean that you can't stop operating on the X. Doesn't mean that you can't go pick your buddy up when he gets shot because you don't feel good. You have to learn to turn those feelings off, basically put your emotions in a box, act like they don't happen, and keep pushing. Your body will do some amazing shit. It's typically your brain that will tell you that you can't do it. If you just, and it's easier said than done. Um, but those are the people that make it through. Um, you know, it's same thing with Connors. Like you get a choice. Yeah. You got torn meniscus. Yeah. You got bulging discs. Yeah. You got busted out labrums. Yeah. You've got tendons and ligaments that don't work. But what do you want to do? Do you want to fix it and wash you back for a year while you recover? Or do you just want to tape it up? knock down some ibuprofen and some caffeine and get back in with your team. So dealing with injuries in the special operations pipeline, in my opinion, is 180 degrees different than as a professional athlete. In a professional athlete, you have people who are catering to you 24-7 to give you, like, dude, when I was at the Olympic Training Center, um, I, I tweaked my knee. I went up to LA. I got PRP. I got HGH shots. I got peptide shots. Like I had everything at my disposal to keep me operating at an optimal level. You don't get that when you're in the pipeline, you're not sleeping, you're not eating, you're under stress, you're overtasked, and you just have to get through with it. So the, the easy silver bullet answer is you mitigate injuries where you can and you accept the ones that you can't do anything about. If you get shit luck and you step in a hole like I did and you bust your ankle, there's nothing you can do to avoid that. That was your destiny and now you just got to swallow that shit pill and get on with your job. Um, outside of that, just like Connor said, it's you know 25% is the actual training. 
So the other 75% is the recovery and the maintenance and the nutrition of your body. So foam rolling, massage therapy, acupuncture, like you, you got to treat your body as your greatest asset because it will betray you if you don't do it that way. And there's, there's, a, there's a delicate balance between going out and burning it down on the weekend with your buddies because you want to de-stress and then also preparing for what's about to happen in the next week, doing it properly. Good question. Good question, Joseph. Okay, Kevin, right, go even, ahead. Thank you, uh, first of all, for talking to us and uh, hanging out with us tonight. Uh, I have a question for y'all specifically in terms of building resiliency uh, to extreme environments uh, with the understanding that a lot of soft guys uh, need to be ready at any moment to go to uh, an incredibly hot, high-altitude place and then maybe a couple months later end up in snow-capped mountains or what be it. So, I mean, at the end of the day, being physically fit is going to be the thing that's going to help you with all those things, right? There's no perf perfect environment. Some people who are growing up in the cold are even used to being in the cold. I grew up in Boston, so being in the cold, I mean, it sucks still, but I mean, I'm able to deal with that better than somebody who's, you know, not from here. Um, but it's just being physically fit. The biggest thing is, like, like you said, is you want to be a guy who's on team, who they can trust to put you in an environment like you know if on a, on a mountainside and you're gonna pull your weight and carry and they're not and they're not gonna have to you know walk, like worry about you not being able to complete your mission because you're not physically fit and that's the biggest thing yeah you're gonna have to deal with but man we get the gear and special operations you're gonna get all the good gear to help you out in those environments so especially in special operations so we're, we'll be the best ones out kitted out ready to, to comp you know to put as a deployers wherever we need to be um, but yeah, so that's the biggest thing is just making sure you're, you're doing your part by being physically fit and ready to go. Yeah. I think there's two things that you need to keep in mind. Uh, when you said, you know, operators are expected to deploy at a moment's notice to possibly, you know, high altitude, cold weather, or, you know, sub-Saharan desert temperatures. I think maybe at a moment's notice is a bit more on the JSOC side of the house. So think tier one operators that are uh, like notification plus three hours type deployment, the guys that run around with the cell phone that they can't turn off. Um, in the conventional soft arena, uh, white soft, vanilla soft, so think combat control, pararescue, uh, SEAL, uh, MARSOC, 75th Ranger Reg, um, you're going to get a chance to work up and acclimatize. Um, and then like, like, so, you know, if you're going to be taking a, a combat deployment to Afghanistan, you're going to go train in a mountain somewhere and you're going to get acclimatized to it. And that's going to be part of your workup. And then when you get there, you're going to be given all the Gucci gear. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't wrap your head around trying to get used to putting yourself in those environments to adapt to it. I would highly suggest that you learn the mental tricks to ignore those environments. So for instance, anytime that we were headed to the pool, which was dreadful and very stressful for a lot of people, my mental Jedi mind trick was, well, fuck, at least I'm not running. I would rather be in the pool than out there running. And then guess what? When we're out there running, I would be like, well, at least I'm not drowning in the pool. So you, you ignore, whatever element that you're thrown in, you find a mental Jedi trick to flip the script, so to speak, and ignore the element that you're in. You will be expected to ignore hunger, expected to ignore heat, expected to ignore cold. So wasting, I don't want to say wasting time, but spending mental energy, emotional energy on trying to get good at adapting to those environments, I think is, is, uh, not, is not a good investment of your time. I would spend more time working on how to ignore those elements when I'm actually there in between the six inches between your ears. 
I'll give you an, I'll give you another example, cold water, right? So, um, a lot of, I, you can hear some stories about, you know, seals going through hell week in, in winter when the water's 55 degrees. Well, you know, what, well, here's two, two sayings that I utilized when I was in the pipeline. Uh, the first is regarding cold water. Well, when you actually immerse yourself in the cold water and the cold water hits and that feeling hits and you get the vasoconstriction, everything tightens up and it takes your breath away. What is that feeling to you? Well, to the untrained mind, that feeling is, fuck, this is cold. This is cold. And this is uncomfortable. But if you can retrain your thought process to, this is actually good for me. This is therapeutic for me because now I'm flushing inflammation out of my body. So you take that cold feeling that you thought used to be bad and you now apply it to a positive environment, a positive setting. Hey, the longer I'm in this cold water, the less time I'm out there carrying a log. So you just find a way to adapt to your environment mentally so that when you actually put into those extreme environments, it bears no factor, none whatsoever. You just operate. Uh, yeah, it, Kevin, have you like heard I the said, phrase uh, roll with the punches before? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Right. Have you ever studied biology, Kevin, or chemistry or anything like that? Uh, the, the basics. <laughs> so there's a, a quality in stem cells in particular. And uh, if you want to look it up on Google, it's called plasticity. And plasticity is essentially the ability of an organism to change in its environment uh, based on its variability of habitats, right? And so your plasticity is your ability to be able to adapt to your environment. Be, have that plasticity, have that ability to roll with the punches uh, to where you don't get thrown off because something is thrown at you. You don't have to train for three months for something. You can be adaptability. You can have that adaptability to have something new that's thrown at you and you just roll with those punches and you attack it. You don't have to train for it. So I think Mike hit the, the nail on the head there is being able to roll with those punches and be adaptable to that ever changing environment. Right. And it sounds like the key there is uh, finding the silver linings in, in everything. So fitness is the foundation and then finding the, the happy moments in anything you do. All right. Well, thank you so much. All right. Good question, Kevin. Okay. Next question. Let's go on to Marcus. Hey guys, what's going on? just want to thank you guys firstly for being here. Really, really appreciate your time. It really means a lot. My question really revolves mostly around the purpose of CCT. So I'm really interested in being a SEAL. I grew up in LA by the beaches, been serving for 14 years, and the beach is really important to me. Secondly to that, when I went to college, I was the president of my fraternity. It was a great experience, and brotherhood really meant a lot to me, and it really spoke to me, and it really was a part of my experience that I really cherished. And when thinking about special operations, SEAL obviously came as a, as a piece that was first and foremost in my mind, seemed like the right thing to do. Um, but then I found combat control and I kind of delved into it a little more and found it really, really interesting. Also from a podcast that Jason had had up from a guy that he had met that originally was looking at SEALs and ended up doing combat control. So my question really is for a guy that's going to be in combat control, my concern would be if, if my decision were to be to go into that pipeline beyond the pipeline, what's the brotherhood aspect like in CCT? I mean, I know that there's their attachment to other units and I, I have this kind of like curiosity, concern, whatever you want to call it of like, you know, how does someone as a CCT, how are they able to adapt to another team and build a bond of brotherhood with those other guys in such a short amount of time? Whereas maybe if you're a SEAL, you know, you're on a team for X amount of time, you're getting to know everybody, 
And what's that dynamic kind of like, you know, and I'm, I'm really curious because that that's kind of a, a deciding factor for me. I'm really thinking about combat control and, and I really think the, the mission set is awesome and, and I've, I found it really interesting, but I, I do worry that maybe that that brotherhood aspect isn't there to the same extent that it might be there on, let's say like a SEAL team or, you know, an ODA or something like that. Solid question, Marcus. Which one do you guys want to hit that? I'll jump in first before I lose my train of yeah, thought. Hit it, hit, yeah, hit it I, Mike. Uh, very valid things that you're looking for. I, I, I do think that the new 2030 mission set for special warfare, special tactics will probably suit what you're looking for because uh, controllers and PJs will not be augmenting other units nearly as frequently as they have in the past. They're already not doing it as much. So um, the 2030 vision and everything that the teams and the units are driving to is, is for that unilateral strike reconnaissance recovery uh, capability. So I think you're probably going to find that brotherhood that you're looking for similar to what you'd find in any other soft unit like MARSOC or the, or the SEALs or something like that, much more so in the future than you would if you were to get in with Connor and I or even right, or even you know before that. Um, the kind of bread and butter mission of the, the controllers and the commando, commando mission was being an augmentee. So you were the lone Air Force guy attached to a SEAL platoon or, or uh, you know, a Ranger Battalion or a, an ODA team. And that, that was a hard – I never did it, so I can't speak personally to it, but I, I've heard that it was very hard uh, to do, especially if you didn't show up to that team humble and ready to serve your team. If you showed up with uh, the ego mentality of, hey, look at me, I've got four combat deployments and silver stars and shit like that, again, you get spit right back out, and that ODA captain will call your, call your command and send you back. And – there's been, there's been controllers that have been kicked off teams within the first week of their deployment with an ODA because the ODA team will just spit them back out. Be like, nah, send us something different. We don't want them. So yeah, I think you're going to see a lot more of that uh, in the new mission set with the 2030 uh, plan. So I don't think you have much to worry about there. I think it will be a good fit for you. I'll leave one more last comment on this. For me personally, I don't know if it's like this for Connor, but I met – some of my closest friends and confidants that I'll ever have in my entire life in the pipeline and, and at my unit guys that I would absolutely give the shirt off my back, uh, who are the captain America posters who live the life of the quiet professional and then live their life with moral integrity. Um, and then I have also met some of my most moral enemies, dudes that I wouldn't fucking piss on if they were on fire in the teams. So be cognizant of that when of what you're expecting to meet when you get in there. Um, the brotherhood is real and it does exist, but you're going to see both sides of the sword when you get there. There's going to be some conflicted people there and you're just going to learn how to, you just got to deal with it. Yeah. Uh, totally agree with, with him on that. There's definitely some dudes. I mean, it's just like that anytime you, you get dealt with these like type A personalities and what it takes to be a special operator. I mean, some of, some of the things that can make somebody so good also has, you know, dramatic effects on the other side that make him kind of like a shitty person. But overall, I'm going to say, dude, dude, honestly, I have all my, a lot of my best friends are all our combat controllers and, or, you know, in the game, even, even the community itself, overall, I get along with like some of the, my best friends in the world. I still talk to, I went on, I had a freaking zoom meeting with my friends the other day of, um, you know, a couple of my teammates that I went to the training with and we haven't talked to each other for a year and we start talking. It sounds just like we just start being Mr. B. So 
behind me and I still have that bond. And like guys like you and I'll meet other PJs or other combat controllers or I met, I met Jason, me and Jason never worked together. We never served together, we met each other after the service, but I mean, where we get along great too. So just because we know each other, we know we, we, we both been through and we can level, we're on the same level, like playing that, that once you make it and you become a combat controller, we're all on that kind of that same level. So we all have that, that, that equal respect for each other for, for the most part. So we can, you know, it's just easy to integrate with each other. So there's definitely that brotherhood that's there. It's, 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 a, it's a fraternity. It's a gang. It's, a, it's a definitely a good community to be a part of. Yeah, I love combat controllers. Uh, one of the grooms at my wedding, combat controller, Ryan Wolf. Loving to death. Talk to him every week. I know you guys know Ryan. So. Yep. Okay, fellas, that's it as far as the Q&A goes. Um, hope you guys had a great time tonight. It was awesome having uh, Connor and Mike on tonight, just comparing and contrasting special operations versus being an elite athlete. Thank you for listening. This is So Calm Athletes Podcast. Send me. This is your host, Jason Sweet. Check us out on Instagram at So Calm Athlete. Check us out online at www.socalmathlete.com and now on YouTube at So Calm Athlete. Be on the lookout for our next episodes. Leave us a review, five stars, whatever platform you're listening on. Also be on the lookout for our Hell Day announcements, spring and summer dates. Thank you for listening to So Calm Athletes Podcast. Send me. This is your host, Jason Sweet. We are out. Yeah.